What's your pleasure, sir? To start with the cliches, time to raise some hell in this podcast. Yeah, we have such sights to show you, which yeah. a, a line which does not work at all here, since this is pure audio product and not have, does not have a visual aspect. <laughs> now get creative and do an audio version of that. What would it be? We have such ear rape to offer you. We have a winner and welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Karri. He's Henrik. How are you? I'm kinda okay-ish, uh, I guess. A bit nervous on today's episode. Goddamn. Yeah. Is there any films that I could throw at you that you are not having tr- some troubles with? <clears throat> I really don't know. This part, the track record has really not be- been in any way on that side. <laughs> I guess it's kind of uh, our quality also in here. You know, we always kind of overdo it, don't we? But on the other hand, that's what makes this podcast for me, so... Kind of the same thing here. Although I have to admit that there are numerous times when overdoing these films is actually quite a pain in the ass. Yeah, yeah it is. But I noticed that if I just watch the movie, there, there is nothing that I would specifically always find just with that. I have to salivate it a little bit. Maybe watch it even for a second time and read the goddamn history of the film. That's where we get the meat around the bones. Uh, the background work really is, is something that many times actually tries to drive me completely nuts behind the scenes of the episodes. Especially since this is a weekly feature, which which means that you, you have, in worst cases, you have only a few days time to actually try to do your background research for every episode. Yeah, and honest to God, uh, or any other kind of higher power, I didn't start it like this. It wasn't even my intention. It was my intention to make this kind of as easy as possible. <laughs> but but I just refused to do that. I need something more. I want to do something more. And that's my, my benefit and flaw in life in general. The podcaster has gone through numerous changes already this far. During the a little over half a year we have now done the podcast. There has been quite a lot of changes that have happened. Pretty much small things, but still, for us, quite significant alterations that we have made. Oh, really? I thought that the kind of the backbone of this has been the same from the beginning. Well, we have become way more analytical in our approaches to films as the episodes have run. We have lessened the fact where we try to make snarky comments when we go to film scene by scene as, for example, was something that we still tried to achieve back in the rear window episode. And well, f- feel free to make snarky remarks. Just, uh, they are not always forthcoming from me, but you are the snark comment expert. I say it as uh, in all the positive ways. Uh, then again, you know, I think that we have managed to become something more serious than just trying to be snarky and nitpicky. Mm. 
So I, I'm not saying that the changes have been necessarily negative or something that we shouldn't have done. Also, something that our long-time listeners may have noticed is that we have quite truly and well dropped the drink of the episode theme, which we were trying to keep up to the point in our first episodes. That concept was flawed from the beginning. Uh, yeah, it was. It truly was. It was a concept that really didn't give you that much room to maneuver. Like, to have many different types of drinks to consume between the episodes would have mean that we would have had to kind of a jump from film to film much more quicker. Like, we couldn't, for example, do many American horror movies back to back because most of the American horror movies drink Bud Light. <laughs> or Budweiser or something like that. So, a point that came extremely and painfully clear to us when we were doing the Halloween franchise. Yeah, it was a good idea and it is a kind of an idea that we could use in future episodes. Maybe specifically we could leave it to horror movies or for sure to Halloween movies. I mean, it's. I, I think it's like a necessity. If they're still going to punch out the, <sighs> the next Halloween next year or the year after that. As they most likely will know that since Halloween 2018 made all the money. Yeah, I'm already hearing some rumblings, Henrik. It's starting to look like that. that it's either next year or the one after that. Uh, well, we always like to go back to Haddonfield in this podcast, at least to make some snarky remarks. Yep. And I'm, after Halloween 2018, I mean, we both have completely different opinion of the film, but I'm kind of actually waiting to see the next Halloween sequel for a change. Okay, well, I'll be honest. I'm completely and utterly still not interested on, of seeing any more anything. I'm still feeling the Halloween exhaustion. <laughs> I, I have no idea in which directions they are willing to take this, and I just don't care. Uh, right now, I don't care. I, on my end, I do care, but I too would not like to see another Halloween movie anytime soon. Not even visiting the old classics since. I'm still <laughs> weary from the track that, which was going through the entire franchise. Yeah, and now being so familiar w- with the franchise, you know, you know so many of the flaws, and you're so goddamn aware of them now that it would be extremely hard to go through something like even even Halloween 4 or well 5 for sure and yeah. onwards and apologies in advance well not in advance because we are already recording but apologies for the background noise this is the absolute best location that I was able to get at this moment because my particular hostel goddamn sucks because there's just too many people I tried to record in the lobby areas and the corridors. Impossible. I tried to go to the famous Franziska Street in in the Praga section of Warsaw, but every goddamn place is so noisy and full of people on a Tuesday night. I don't know what's wrong with people. Why, why do you have coffee at 7 p.m. in Tuesday night? But they do, and yes, I'm back in Warsaw. Hopefully I'll find some work here so I can get back to my nonsensical love of Poland. <laughs> so, w- once again, recording the episode on the road. Yeah, well, that's kind of, I don't know. For me, that's one sort of uh, attraction of this podcast. 
In a way, yeah. It is a thing where you never actually know where the next episode is going to be recorded at. Oh, I wanted to ask you, do you even yourself remember anymore where you have recorded all of the 30 plus episodes? I'm not completely sure, now that you ask. At least I do remember most of the places where I have been doing these episodes. Now you're in uh, Romaniemi, Finland. Yep. Been here, uh, luckily now have been here for a number of episodes. So I, I have had the luxury of a stable environment when doing the recording. Of course that is going to change once again at the end of this month. When I, on my end, hit the road for two weeks, and those episodes once again will be recorded on my end in some very improvised locations. Seeing the workload we are dealing with here in the lab, it would be the next Christmas when we have a next break. <laughs> I was thinking like uh, midsummer. That's where I have marked the next break. At least. I, I most definitely do have a kind and understanding master in you. <laughs> Today's movie, Hellraiser. This is kind of your movie. You did review once again this to our website that we used to write for. And you did write some reviews for the sequels after that. Yeah, I did have that go at the franchise during that point. Luckily those reviews are actually lost to the time. Uh, I wouldn't be so sure, they are still on my hard drive. No, they ain't. <laughs> Delete them. <laughs> oh my god. I have some recollection of the language used in some of those reviews and my attempts at trying to be snarky and itchy and oh boy, is that cringeworthy material. <laughs> How old were we, actually? We were... Fucking not... teens. Were we even teens? We were like 17, 18. You were a little bit... Of, well, you're not not so, not so much older than me. No, so... I, I, I beat you, like, with two months. Right. <laughs> and I, I don't know why I always had this idea, like, you're like the big brother of this team, but <laughs> age-wise, age I don't know where that came from. <laughs> But um, yeah, you did those, and would you kind of see yourself as a Hellraiser fan? I most definitely am a Hellraiser fan. And how did that come about? When did you first see this, and how was it? Uh, you, you mean, how did I meet with Hellraiser, or how did I meet with this particular film? Because my entry point to the franchise actually is the fourth film, oh. Bloodlines. Okay, well, let's start with those. Yeah, so Bloodline, uh, I had been aware of Hellraiser before I ever saw Bloodline for the first time, but I had never had the pleasure to see any of the films. Bloodline was the, I believe it was the first Hellraiser film which had a major release in Finland as a VHS. In a sense that Bloodline was the tape that you could find pretty easily from any supermarket that showed VHS tapes. And it was the Hellraiser film that you eventually could find from the Pargain Pin. Yeah, the famous Hellraiser where Pinhead goes to space. Pinhead in space, basically. Still, still, I do think that it is better than its reputation says. And especially with Bloodlines, there is the fact that there are like two versions of the film. There is the unreleased director's cut, which 
12 very hard and big themes, for example, comparing the main hero of the film to Pinhead and drawing these parallels between the Xenobites and the humans. All those points were actually axed from the film mid-production, thanks to our friend and neighbor Harvey Weinstein, who once again had his meddling hands in the production process. So the final version that you have, the released version of Hellraiser 4, it is very much the bastardized version of the film, to a point where the director of the film actually demanded that his name is not tied to the released product. Regarding bastardization, well, it's a strong word, but there were a bunch of changes that now feel extremely silly, even regarding the first film, but we'll get to that later. But, uh, so you saw Hellraiser 4, Bloodline, and... Yeah, my, actually, my little brother got it for me as a Christmas present. <laughs> a film which he had no business in buying, legally-wise. So I don't know who he actually tricked into buying the film for him so that he could gift it to me. But, yeah, my first entry to the franchise is thanks to my little brother. That's, that's sweet. What a Christmas present. And did you then see the first one? Yup. Next in line was the first one. And with the first one, it actually is quite an unbelievable story because when it comes to the original Hellraiser, my background with the film actually parallels the film itself and the puzzle box that is very prominently featured in Hellraiser Mythos. Because when I originally started with horror, and became a horror fan. I did that extremely early. I was very young when I got interested in horror and started to pay attention to horror circles. So I did manage to be a horror fan still when the Finnish movie censorship and banning movies was going on in Finland. It was the late years of the film censorship but I did manage to have a few good years of being a horror fan when the scissors run high in Finland. In Finland we never have had the pleasure of having a genre-specific magazines like, for example, US Days Fangoria, which is a horror film-specific magazine. We have had a couple of attempts at that in Finland, most uh, the latest being the Blood Ceremony magazine, which ran it like for 14 issues and was cancelled after that. So we never have had a true prominent magazine that would follow horror movie news. Instead, in Finland, being a horror fan would require you to in any way try to get into the circles. And the whole horror scene very much lived from mouth to mouth information and these six or seven time copied bootleg tapes that someone would sneak into Finland from Sweden or Norway or somewhere else and then you would gather in a small group into a dim room to watch extremely poor quality VHSs. But that was the only way to, you know, get the uncensored version of something like Friday the 13th or any of the horror films. But in those circles, there was kind of this mythical notion of the film Hellraiser, which was supposed to be the dankest shit ever and one of the greatest horror films 
everyone who had ever seen Hellraiser vouched for it and said that that's definitely a horror film you need to see yourself, but you just couldn't get your fucking hands on it in Finland. No way. And this was also the early stages of the internet, so the file sharing community was not there in the capacity that you could get this through internet. So I spent years looking for Hellraiser and my only clues about the film itself were only, you know, what I could hear from others and something that I could read on some obscure fan page. Early 90s, you know, web pages which were completely terrible but which had some extremely low res pictures of the film. And during those times also, the small video boutiques were very prominent in Finland. You basically had, in every city, you, you had a few shops that specialized in selling VHS tapes. Mine was in Tampere, a shop called Filmiaita, which was the coolest place ever. It was dusty and poorly lit. It was halfway below the ground level, and the shopkeeper there was... Somehow he was able to get his hands in some of the most obscure and most, like, the stuff you couldn't even believe was on the market. Mm. I frequented Filmiaita during those years, and it was simply pure accident that one day I would once again visit the film store and just go through the selection of VHS tapes, and there... Completely at random, at one of the dark corners of the shop, there was a shelf which actually did have a finished release of Hellraiser. And... When was this? I no longer remember. It was so long time ago. Years, years back. Yeah. Okay. As far as I remember, the first time that I most possibly saw the Hellraiser films, and I I went in order. I saw them from beginning from one and... Going all the way to probably seven or eight, and I saw them because I was organizing for the first time the Night of the Horrors event, and I just had the bright idea that okay, we need Hellraiser for one of those nights. There was a Nightmare on Elm Street night, and, and there was a Halloween night, and of course the Hellraiser night and Scream night. And somehow I had gotten my hands on what I think was the full series at that time. I have to say, I don't know, was I impressed by the film, the first one when I saw it? I just remember that I was extremely disgusted by it, and kind of everything about it I felt was disgusting. (laughs) And it took years before I returned to the franchise, and I think I've seen this film about three times or four times now. And it's one of those that has grown on me. As a kid, I felt that it wasn't very strong, but... Not sure what happens there, but once you grow older, you start to respect some things way more. Uh, To me, Hellraiser was kind of the film that had a profound effect on me when I first time saw it. It kind of changed horror films, or the way how I see horror films for me. And in many ways, for me, it was a groundbreaking experience. Yeah, and I can totally see that. I remember the year it was 2002. Well, I did kind of like the first two right off the gate, uh, and when it started to get past three, then uh, it kind of started to dilute 
one after the other. I remember when we were watching all of these, the whole franchise in one night, that I got really utterly bored around part 4 or part 5, and after that I was basically kind of like uh, half-sleeping through the rest of the episodes, and I have not even the faintest recollection of what even happens in those parts. But that's also one of the effects that happens when you watch so many movies tired in one weekend. And with Hellraiser is the fact that it's one of those franchises which I feel do not held up when done as a marathon. Yeah, um, I guess Hellraiser is still kind of a concise in its universe, more so than maybe Halloween. Uh, no, it, it, it no way is. In my opinion. Okay. My take on the franchise is that the first two films are absolutely fantastic. I yep. actually like the second one even more than I like the first one. I hear that a lot. Yeah. yeah. To me, Hellbound is most defined as Hellraiser ever got. But after Hellbound, the whole franchise just nosedives and it never recovered. From that, Clive Parker was no longer the background presence after the second one, and boy does it show how the themes and ideas of Hellraiser are being translated in Hellraiser 3. Yeah. Ever after 3, the whole franchise is like, well, it's bad, but in Hellraiser's case, the badness of the franchise is a curious case where you can like some of the later sequels. They are not good films, but they are not as bad as some other sequels you have to suffer through if you are a Hellraiser fan. So, after the second one, the rest of the franchise and how well the franchise is after Hellbound, it's kind of on the scale how much dog shit every film is. Yeah. And out of these big franchises like Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and Friday the 13th, Hellraiser is the only one that finally went straight to video. And while we're talking about that, you don't have to know this, but if you do, please educate me. Is there some kind of a deal that they made with Clive Parker that kind of motivates the studio to keep on pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing the Hellraiser still the end of time, because I heard some kind of uh, ideas that as long as Hellraiser makes money, they are allowed to have the licensing for Hellraiser, and if it doesn't make any more money, then whatever that means, like in sp specifically, if they don't make any more money, then Clive Barker would somehow get the rights back, or does it make any sense to you? It does. Like, I, I don't know what are the actual terms of the contract which has been made but the situation with the franchise is like like you said that they push out a Hellraiser film every now and then simply to keep on to the rights to the franchise so so that they would not lose the rights that, that is the only reason why we still have Hellraiser films coming out today oh. and the, the franchise has gone into a point where Hellraiser 4 was the last Hellraiser film. Now, not with counting the latest one, The Judgment, but after Hellraiser 4, the films in the franchise were no longer written as Hellraiser films. They were, they were the individual standalone horror films, which the studio then took the script and doctored it to have some Hellraiser elements, most notably they 
copy and pasted Pinhead somewhere in the script so that they could technically say that this is a Hellraiser film and this way keep on holding the rights. Hellraiser Judgment for the longest time now is, is the first sequel after 4 that has actually been written as a true Hellraiser film. I, I've heard that Judgment also is not technically, well, maybe that good. I, I've heard two types of rumors. Others say it's completely dog shit, and others say it's one of the better Hellraiser sequels somewhere there with Hellraiser 4, maybe. But still not as bad as some entries to this franchise. But yeah, the, the Judgment is, is, is the only film in, or, or the latest Hellraiser sequel in years, which has, from the get-go, meant to be a Hellraiser film. I don't get it, so you have some kind of a different script that has really nothing to do with Hellraiser, and you could do wonders with these characters if you wanted to, but you just choose to use Pinhead as some kind of a minimal amount in your film, just call it Hellraiser and not really being even a Hellraiser. Well, you know, Hellraiser Hellworld was a horror film about, well, well, not World of Warcraft, but still World of Warcraft, which had a few scenes. It, it, it had like, did it only have one scene at the end in which Pinhead appears? That there was like, like 30 seconds of Pinhead in the entire film. And that's all you get about Hellraiser in Hellraiser Hellworld. But, you know, with, with that 30 seconds deal, technically a Hellraiser film. So the studio managed to keep the rights. Uh, what's the point in the franchise where the franchise does the, the sin of horror movies, where they start to tell about the motives or the background of the, the character, in this case, Pinhead? Is it in Inferno or...? Uh, bloodline. Bloodline. Well, you you kind of get the background of Pinhead as you get it in, in parts 2 and 4. Yeah. Hellraiser 2 is the film that shows you the transformation of Pinhead. Like, shows you the human form and then shows you the transformation. And during Hellraiser 2, Pinhead, at the very end of the film, he once again remembers that he did used to be human once. That is all the background you get for Pinhead in Hellraiser 2, and Hellraiser 3 kind of expands from that, and now ties say, Elliot Spencer, who was the human behind Pinhead, to World War 2, and starts to have some kind of a soul thing going on, and God knows what else, and Bloodline is the film which tries to tell you the background of the puzzle box. Yeah, wasn't it like, now that they are giving this background for Pinhead, then somewhere the films kind of make the case that Pinhead is not really doing what he wants to do, he's just being controlled by some kind of an evil entity, and it would be preferable if he could get back from, from hell to his human form, which he's unable to do, and it's really sad. That, in a sense, has always been part of the Cenobites. The notion mm. that, that there is something above them. Like, in Hellraiser 1 and 2, the religious aspect of, of the Cenobites is very highlighted. To a point where, where Hellraiser 2 actually shows you some kind of a, of a god. 
which resides in this plane which, in lack of better term, is called hell. Something to note which is important when tackling Hellraiser is, is the fact that even though everybody always talks about hell, it's not supposed to mean hell in the religious Christian sense, but it's uh, some mm. other plane which is so kind of a strange to us that we don't have a word for it and and in lack of a better term we call it hell. And this hell has a god, entity, which is called Leviathan, which is shown to you in, in Hellraiser 2. But where it goes in Hellraiser 3, the series starts to make notion that Pinhead itself is, is a combination of a demon and a human soul, Elliot Spencer, which still somehow resides in, in combination inside the creature Pinhead. Never mind uh, Hellraiser 3 or 4 or the other sequels as a whole, but what did you think about giving all the background information on the character? Was it good or no? I did like it, Okay. up until Hellraiser 3. But th- that's where they dropped the ball, but I did like the background information given in, in Hellraiser 2. The, the notion that what Cenobites in the end are is that they are human, and that they are humans who have once opened the box and kind of uh, gone through with everything that the other dimension has to throw at them. Like, they have reached that point where hell no longer has more extreme surprises in store for them, and that they have accepted this other dimension, and they have come to understand that what they have gone through or what they go through in hell is form of pleasure. To me, it's very kind of an important notion when tackling Hellraiser. Yeah, well, we all know that apparently when you reach a certain threshold of pain, there's a small moment where it actually might become pleasurable. Yeah, the so-called limit experience. Right, okay. The synopsis of Hellraiser. Well, there's a guy named Frank who buys the puzzle box and solves it. The only problem is this triggers the Cenobites, and I, I believe the Cenobites as a word is a pure invention of Clive Parker. It's actually not. Oh. As far as I've actually understood, the word Cenobite comes from Old French, or Old Latin-like. Okay. And what it means is, it means a member of a monastic religious order, like for example a monk who lives in a religious community, rather than in in solitude. Okay. So, the religious themes are something that are in the background of, for example, the theme of of the limit experience, which are the pleasures of of hell in Hellraiser. Because the notion of, of limit experience is something that you can also parallel, for example, to an aesthetic or a monk or Buddhist who brings his body to its limits. For example, fasting extremely long times or some other way testing his, mm. his spiritual and bodily limits for the religious purposes. That is something that you can kind of tie into the whole limit experience theme. There is also the notion how the Cenobites in Hellraiser are portrayed and and taken as as a members 
of some kind of a religious order. Like they have a god as shown. And in a sense what they are, they are priests or high priests of hell. Or the plane called hell in Hellraiser. Okay, very thorough. Well, Frank opens the box and this triggers the Xenobites. And then we spent the rest of the film watching his attempt of returning back from hell to back to the amongst of the living. So the story is quite straightforward. That it is. Hellraiser is most definitely very condensed and and when you go plot point by plot point, quite simple horror story. The nuances come from the meaning behind this and that and in the small examples that you get throughout the film. But as a straightforward story, Hellraiser is not the most grandiose one. Especially not the first one. The second one takes these concepts and runs way more further with them. Yeah, I should also note or make the notion that I do believe that the second one, the Hellbound Hellraiser 2, is also my favorite. Because it takes the concept of the first one and kind of expands on it in a way that is really (laughs) pleasurable. For example, the visit to Hell or the area of Leviathan, I suppose. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember I enjoyed the landscapes. I did too, and in my opinion, the version of Hell that Hellraiser 2 gives you is one of the more imaginary ones, and it feels like like a special place. Like, it's it's one of its type in visionary design of a Hell. It's not your typical fireballs. And the very Christian religious imagery being used to portray hell, but instead of that, it's very much its own place. It's something that I have not seen put off in any other horror movie ever since. That's a lot to be said. But I can believe that. I can believe that. When it comes to the source material of Hellraiser, we have to go back to Clive Barker, who wrote the book The Hellbound Heart to which the first Hellraiser film is based on. Then also like uh, years later in I believe to 2015 he did write the kind of a sequel The Scarlet Gospels. There is also uh, Hellraiser The Tall written by Mark Allen Miller but it's in some way closely tied to Clive Parker, which was written for some certain purpose, and it acts continuity-wise as the second part of the three-book whole. Uh, yeah, as far as I've understood, the whole is is done so that the story itself comes from Parker, but he has another person write it to him, most likely because of Parker's health issues, which has hindered his ability to Produce text in a fast pace. Okay. Uh, yeah, and and all to my understanding, it is a sequel to Hellraiser, but it's a prequel to Scarlet Gospels. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Both of the books, which I myself have not yet read. Same here. I did read uh, the the Hellbound Heart and found that it was, for the most part, 
kind of similar to the film. Very similar. There, there is some small changes, but yeah. emphasis on were small. Yeah. And there is an emphasis on certain bodily fluids in, uh, straight out in the beginning, where Frank is apparently getting from this torture some kind of a orgasmic moment, where, like, sperm is flying all around, if I understood that correctly. Uh, that, that, that is precisely what happens. It's not made 100% sure. Is it p- just pure act of desperation, or does Frank actually get some real pleasure from the first tortures he has to go through, but yeah, he starts to spank the monkeys, so to speak, and does ejaculate all over the floorboards. And to give an example about the differences between the two versions, in film it's it's Larry who simply bleeds on the floorboards, which makes it possible for Frank to escape, but in the novel it's the blood which mixes with Frank's semen, or the leftovers of his semen, which form the kind of a pathway which Frank can use to escape. Yeah, that's 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 kind of weird. Maybe it's some kind of a sexual frustration that we see in, in the writing. But a little uh, bit af- after the whole Hellraiser, he came out of the closet. <clears throat> there is uh, the notion that needs to be made is that this is the early... Clive Barker and Clive Barker himself he started as a as a splatterpunk author and splatterpunk is a subgenre of horror literature which was born kind of a out of the video era yeah so to quote Markus Sadelehto who did collect the collection of uh, the splatterpunk anthology which I have Clive Barker's Hellbound Heart, there is the notion made that David Y. Shaw has confessed that he came up with the term by taking the first part of Splatter movies and a later part of the word cyberpunk. And the term was supposed to be a common nominator for the horror writers of the rock generation. Okay, I see. In Splatterpunk, the building blocks very much were movies, TV, hard music, war to an extent, especially in the American splatterpunk authors were fixated in the Vietnam traumas and drugs, very graphic depictions of violence and sex. It was supposed to be this kind of going to the limits music video era horror literature, and in my opinion often ham-fisted attempts to insert sexual acts to every single story is kind of one of the staples of splatterpunk. Yeah, and definitely Hellraiser does go to certain limits right here, and certainly in its themes of Hell and Xenobites, and the, the film was way more graphical from what I hear in its original form, but uh, censors do their censoring, and but we we can get to the like censored scenes later on in this podcast. I myself never have been the biggest fan of splatterpunk, and that is 
kind of the biggest issue I have with Clive Parker's writing, especially the early years. Clive Parker. I've always thought that Parker is extremely visionary, visionary author who has the ability to really to envision these very outlandish and breathtaking landscapes. But goddamn, I I just never have gotten into the kind of a trope level usage of sex in yeah. in Parker stories. That that is my biggest issue with Parker on page. The constant usage of sex. And I myself, I, I do think that Parker works better as a visual artist in forms of games and movies. Yeah, and speaking of movies, this is uh, Clive Parker's directorial debut. Yeah, so there were also Nightbreed, Lord of Illusions, and Clive Parker's Salome and the Forbidden. That basically is Clive Parker's directorial career, unfortunately. He did do a shit ton of more writing, and there is a bunch of films that are based on his short stories, but as a, as a director, Clive Parker kind of never recovered from Nightbreed flopping and Lord of Illusions not being the moneymaker that it should have been. Salome and For- Forbidden, on the other hand, are two short films that Clive Parker made before Hellraiser, they are extremely experimental and more of these kind of a meditative artistic endeavors than, than actual short movies in a, in a typical sense. Yeah, and this whole Hellraiser project feels kind of uh, like in his own words, he also made the notion that he was it was kind of a hobby for him to do this project of Hellraiser and it spawned from the fact that he had been dismayed at movie adaptations that had been made of his literary works, so he attempted to do Hellraiser by himself. Barker had written The Underworld and Rawhead Rex before, you know, filming Hellraiser, and both of those movies, in my opinion, suck quite a lot. So I do understand why when it came to Hellraiser, Parker himself was fed up with other people touching his work and doing films based on his stories and wanted to do the film himself. Yeah, I mean, I remember that Rohead Rex had some kind of interesting directions, but with a better director it could have been a whole different, well, no pun intended, beast. But like you said, he had created those, but meaning as he had written those stories. But uh, once again, Hellraiser is his first project to direct. He also wanted an electronic music band called Coil to do the music, but it was rescored by Christopher Young on the insistence of the studio. And I was able to listen to the original Coil soundtrack, and I have to say I wasn't very impressed. Not sure what they were trying to do exactly here, but it would for sure sound very dated now. But even disregarding that, I don't see any way in hell, no pun intended, that this soundtrack or an electronic soundtrack in any shape or form would work in the film. I also listened to the core soundtrack. I, on my end, I did like it, in a way. And 
I can see how it could work with Hellraiser, which clearly it was much more minimalistic in its scope. It was more industrial. It had, for example, that sound of a metal pipe, which I really liked. And in my opinion, it it kind of a... With that, Hellraiser would have felt maybe a bit more grimier. It, It would have made the film more gritty, in a sense. That all being said, I am, however, pleased with the producer's decision to leave Coil's soundtrack out of the film and instead put Young's soundtrack in its place, which I feel that is more grandiose and helps to present the Cenobites more as these great, more than you and me entities, and it helps to bring more notion to the religious aspects of the Cenobites. With Young's soundtrack and with the Parker's visuals, to me at least, the Cenobites come off kind of like if a pagan would meet the Inquisition. And I like that. I have no idea what that means, but we will go with that. When I listen to the Coil soundtrack, there is no way that I could fit those particular pieces of music with the film that we now have, so I don't know if this was supposed to be the final soundtrack, or was this supposed to be something that could be like uh, the groundwork for the final soundtrack, or whatever was going on, but like you, I'm very happy that Christopher Young's soundtrack is there. That being said, though, I'm very much into all kinds of experimental soundtracks. I just don't know how to fit Coil's stuff right here. I could see the first two tracks of the soundtrack kind of working in in, in the film. The track I have most problems with is the puzzle box theme, which has this kind of a circus element to it. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, there I think that the soundtrack most misses the mark. It's also one of the very few pieces of music from the Coil soundtrack that I could I could see, that you could actually put it in, in the film. But Christopher Young, also one of his other soundtracks, is one of my all-time horror film favorites. And that's kind of a funny notion to make about Nightmare on Elm Street 2, because there isn't a whole lot of cues in that film or even music there, there is not a whole lot of anything in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 in Young's defense well we still have to do the nose 2 episode and I would disagree with you there but the cues that the music that we have in that film from Christopher Young that's all absolutely hellishly great and I do enjoy a Hellraiser soundtrack as well Granted, the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 soundtrack was uh, at its most memorable and at its strongest with the featuring songs that are there that are that have nothing to do with Christopher Young. Uh, that it, yeah, that it was soundtrack-wise. Yeah, but still, there was a comment from Clive Barker. He said that many people will be stunned by the elegance and the beauty of the image, and simultaneously appalled by the subject matter. And that kind of, I think, sums up Hellraiser pretty well. It's kind of disgusting, but you still enjoy some sick beauty in that ugliness. I understand the working title for this film was Sedemasochists from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> Produced by Christopher Fig. 
he suggested the name Hellraiser instead of Hellbound. And after filming, New World convinced Parker to relocate the story to the United States, which required overdubbing to remove some of the British accents. And, and this is where we get to these funny studio decisions that don't quite make sense to me. Well, I can perhaps see that New World was looking for more like an international release for this film, and I'm not sure how well that film would be received at first if in the trailer you hear only British accents. There's something close to that. I don't know, did it ever hurt the James Bond franchise? Yeah, sure, sure, but... Uh, I, I mean, the British accent is not that off. Especially, you know, the version that you get in, in films. Which yeah, is it, not the hard slam and hard accents that you, you could get, you know, if, if you would actually visit UK. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, like they don't use the actual Cockney accent in films. <laughs> but then again, this is very much known for being sort of a British horror film. Uh, there could have been a lot to climb to convince viewers or people who distribute the film to put it out there. If you have the British accents, I don't know, but that's definitely what seems that the New World was thinking at the moment. I think it's still kind of ridiculous because, well, now you have uh, this film with less British accent and you still base it, or you're supposedly basing it somewhere in the US soil, right? Which was first supposed to be in England. And it very much still kind of has this kind of an England vibe. So it's kind of an oddball to me. Yeah, yeah. Then again, that's not something that is completely unheard of, even today. Yeah. In most of the major studio releases, it is kind of a norm that you have American characters that are being played by British actors. Tony Randall, the person who directed the Hellbound, the Hellraiser 2, he is an uncredited second editor of this film. Then there is Ashley Lawrence playing Kirsty, and he was contractually obliged to do the Hellraiser 1 and 2. She herself enjoyed the first one much more. She is uh, sort of an artist painter, kind of like Henrik. Or perhaps not, maybe you're still going to do the video games. I most likely am going to do the video games. Then there's Andrew Robinson. His first film was Dirty Harry. He really didn't like the house. <laughs> he said the house was as ugly as it looks on the film. And it truly does. It truly does. Everything is off-putting in this film, god damn it. But that's what they were looking for. Even the cast of characters are off-putting here, Henrik. Like, I do not like Andrew Robinson. I do not like, uh, well, Frank or Sean Chapman. And I, I don't really like Claire Higgins either. And As actors or as characters? Well, I mean, the performances are actually quite weak for the most part in this film. I, on the other hand, liked the performances extremely a lot. I mean, if, if I have to go, like, performance-wise, I, I will give it right now, even before the quick categories, because I have to, like, Andrew Robinson, hands down, ha well, he has also the most interesting role, because he has to double as the baddie in the end, and he, he does a marvelous job. But Claire Higgins, he kind of gets some kind of a praise for this film, because she's, like, a established long... Uh, career-running theater actor, even though she gives a shit performance here. Then there's Ashley Lawrence, 
the, the performance, there's nothing really to say about that. Sean Chapman, I don't know, like, people speak even weirdly in this film. Even the dialogue is creepy, how it's performed. I don't know, there's a lot of off-putting shit in this film. And this comes like from the guy who just a moment ago was wondering why the hell did they need American dubbing for the film? <laughs> well, I mean, what do you mean? Well, you, you said yourself, like, the speaking <laughs> sounds awful. Like, can, can you just I- imagine, in that case, you know, the, the original English audio? No, well, maybe it was more convincing, or maybe it sounded more normal. Maybe that's it. Speaking American accent with a certain roughness that still remains in the performance, which is what you get normally in the British accent. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird film. I, I would just say that that's a weird opinion and nothing more. Can I come in? Can I come in or not? That's 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 weird line. It's just it, it was said in the heat of the moment. Yeah, I get that they they were doing a character where with the minimal amount of lines and performance, the story moves forward, and maybe he has this, this kind of aura of mysticity around him. With that, uh, fuck this weird. This film is weird. You you can't uh, come off and said that ever after Hellraiser there has been another performance which would have so much come to daddy in any other movie. Yeah, basically like half of horror movies. Well, not anywhere near like half of horror movies. There, there is insidiousness there. Mm, sure, and even then it's really weird, that whole scene and ho- ho- that whole line. I mean, it literally doesn't make much sense. It doesn't even make sense what he's trying to do there. But we, we can get to that in the scene by scene. You, you just better remember, you know, this discussion point as we get to the actual scene. Yeah, for sure. Well, Andrew Robinson, he really enjoyed the character because he was able to play the baddie as well. The dark and the light in the same character, in a sense. And he thought that Hellraiser 2 didn't have a good script. And he said he was ready to play in Hellraiser 2 but wanted to get only the same pay he got for the first one, so that's not asking a lot after the success of Hellraiser, but they wanted to pay even less than that, so he passed on the project. Again, some of these idiotic studio decisions that you just have to be kind of baffled what were they doing here. Then we have Sean Chapman. He said that he worked six days or so for the film. In the scenes, where you have the Frank the Monster. A normal person, with a normal average weight person, would kind of look like the Michelin Man, as he said. So they needed Oliver Smith to play the Frank the Monster parts, because they put a lot of makeup and special effects stuff on the body. And Oliver Smith happened to be extremely thin individual, and gave a good performance in his scenes. And of course there's Doc Bradley, and he's playing Pinhead. His first film, in fact. One of those legendary horror icons, as discussed. There's Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, and Pinhead. The four big ones. A sort of a repulsive glamour about him, that kind of puts it really well. Took about an hour to take off the makeup. Couldn't see much of anything through his contact, l- contact lenses. And kind of in the Blu-ray you can see... You can feel that he doesn't see shit behind those contacts. For Frank the Monster, or Oliver Smith, took about four to six hours in makeup daily. Yeah, that's what you get in these horror makeup 
and prosthetics fiestas. It's a lot of work. Robert Englund spent like 15 years in a makeup chair, thanks to the Freddy franchise. That explains the facial features then. If nothing else, it explains being pissed off and moving constantly around once the cameras are shooting. That is the secret behind an energetic performance. Should we get to the scene by scene? Uh, by all means, take us there. Alright. We start with the logos as they usually start, and special mention for the New World Pictures logo and animation and music. I always like that one. Reminds me of United Artists. We start with a shot of the box, which is apparently now in Morocco. And we start with the well-known line, What's your pleasure, sir? And this film is all about disgusting. We have quickly a shot of a hand with these fingernails that are somewhat long, but the thing is there's dirt under the fingernails. Also the other guy's fingernails. What I think are the other guy's fingernails look, yeah, look extremely rotten. And once this episode comes out, no one is gonna pay any attention to your notion about the fingernails. But instead are simply gonna take your mentioning how the fi- everything in this film is disgusting to imply the fact that the opening scene appears to be somewhere maybe Marrakesh, maybe Turkey. Like h- hard to say the exact location. Yeah, I understand it was uh, it was mentioned somewhere that it was supposed to be Morocco. Is it in the book? It was in the original short story, if I remember correctly, where they have the background of how Frank originally heard about the box and how he came to acquire the box. Mm. Well, it's hard not to pay attention to the ugly-ass fingernails in this scene and all the flying mosquitoes that you hear in the background, all trying to imply how disgusting everything is. I think that's the main point of that scene and to get the box. Well, and then we get to the scene where Frank has the box and is surrounded by the candles. Some kind of a whatever, like a mystical formation. Or he's just getting into the zone to prepare to open the box. And he does open the box. It's kind of unclear what he's actually looking for here in the film's universe anyway. Is he looking for pain? Is he looking for pleasure? Is he looking for new adventures of some sort? He makes the notion that he was looking for pleasure. Some kind of a new form of pleasure since he had already experienced and become bored with all the traditional forms of pleasure. Hence the best course of action is to play with a puzzle box that you clearly don't know hey, quite a lot times. about. Yeah, I suppose. So, basically, it's a story about a Westerner whose life is so empty that he has exhausted his ways of getting pleasure because of his lack of imagination, and then he has to turn to a mythical, magical, otherworldly box that will give him, like, deadly pleasure and eternal torment in hell. Well, Frank does make the notion that and the version he had heard about the box was that it was supposed to open gateways either to hell or heaven. Frank himself makes the case that he at the time did not care which one he would end up in. He was simply needing the stronger stimuli so that he was willing to blindly risk either of the two directions. But you kinda could easily believe that Frank's goal here was to to end up in heaven. And the short story goes even greater lengths, emphasizing this point since 
in in there Frank actually states it out or thinks it out in his head that what he was awaiting was some kind of a more extreme form of the same sexual pleasures you get in the normal world, in our society. Mm. Frank was expecting to get these oceans of women and was nowhere near expecting what he actually ends up receiving once he opens the box. About the box, I'm fascinated by the box, it's beautiful, and there is at least one artist that has done a replica according to the specifications of the original artist of the box. And, well, unfortunately and quite obviously, it doesn't have the mechanical functions that you see in in the film, where it kind of twists and turns and has separate parts. But uh, I can see that as something that could be achieved. I just haven't found any such mechanical version of the box. That would be even more fascinating. But, you know, just uh, if you're into collecting all kinds of weird shit, then you could go to the puzzleboxmaker.com. And there you have this very detailed replica and costs about 200 bucks. I have come across a notion that there also are uh, versions of the box which are movable. Okay. But they do not have the animatronics or the mechanics built inside of them so that they would move on their own accord like the box does in the film. Okay. Well, I could see even that happening. I don't know in what way it was actually made in the film, but, you know, a couple of batteries and voila. Yeah, the problem, I guess, most which would come with that would be once the pieces would kind of have to start to slide and once again close, like they do in film where the box kind of... Some of the moving parts in in the box shown in the film, in my opinion, move in such of a way and the pieces are so big when they move that that would kind of create a problem with, first off, with the placement of the batteries, but also with... Mm any kind of linings that the pieces would have to have so that they could rise up and lower themselves and also the wiring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wondered about that, if, if, if even the movement of the pieces makes sense in any practical way. Or It looks like there are several versions of the box, obviously, that they use here and probably very hard to, you know, make a workable one version of the box, if not impossible, in the way that it's represented right here. Well, then we have this kind of a dated effects where the hooks come to the skin of Frank outside of the box. It's kind of looks weird, like it looks some, like some kind of a plastic. You have made the notion before that it would be chicken skin, but it doesn't look like that to me. Uh, no, now that, you know, once again, looking at it closer and looking it at higher definition, this my first copy is, is the VHS version. Yeah, I, I guess that I have been wrong in my previous statement, and that would be, I don't know, maybe some kind of a latex yeah, which they use. could be, could be, could be. Unfortunately, is the scream of Frank is a little bit goofy. A bit takes me out of the moment when the scene finishes. You know, like I mentioned, I'm the... The performances are not strong in this film, but still, uh, it's not a big deal considering the overall uh, creativity of this film, with which Roger Ebert vehemently 
does not agree with. We'll get to that later. But then we got to the house, which will be our center point in this film. We do have some cool special effects. First of Hell, where we are introduced to Pinhead, who is going through his amazing collection of human skin and doing a little puzzle games with the face of a of a human face. Not sure exactly what happens right there. Like, is it Pinhead playing with the box and then sealing the box once again after killing Frank? I suppose. He simply closes the box after he has taken Frank with him, as he's supposed to do to anyone mm. ever manages to open the box. Mm. Like now, Frank has opened the box, which summons the Cenobites, and now Frank has been taken to hell as it's supposed to be, and at this point, the whole thing has already served its function, so Pinhead just quickly closes the box and leaves the scene. Unfortunately, the latex or whatever it is, the face pieces on the table do not look like Frank at all, so I never made the connection that this is this has anything to do with the previous scene where Frank was crying in agony. Frank's torn up face. This is some part where I'm I'm willing to agree with you when it comes to effects and acting in the film. The effects on Frank's torn up face really ain't that great. They are kind of a honky, and you can very clearly see that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't bother me. I just always kind of viewed it as as some kind of a powerful introduction to the elements that we could see later on in this film. I think there's some kind of specific term for this, but they use it like goddamn truckloads nowadays in films. You have something strong in your opening that doesn't quite make sense, but it will be explained later on in the film to grab the viewer's attention because we are lazy today. You have to put in something that takes you to the world immediately. Then, well, in the book, the guy is called Rory. Yep. Yep. And here, here he is Larry. Larry and Julia arrived to the house. You might know the history of the house better, but, uh, well, Frank was living there and then he mysteriously... Well, no, Frank was using the house for his puzzle box purposes, at least. And it's some kind of a family house that is now taken into use. It's Frank's and Larry's mother's house. The mother has disease in some point of time. It's never actually stated when that happens, and it's nowhere where important to the story. But yeah, the house belongs to their mother. And there is a small notion being made in the story that Frank has previously used that house as a hiding spot when he has, well, like Larry states out, made one of his remarkable breaks or escapes, hinting that Frank has done some prison time, and there is also the notion to be made that Frank is portrayed as a petty criminal, so it can also, has worked as, as a hideout when Frank has, for example, been hiding from from some other underworld contacts that Frank has crossed. Yeah, I th- think it's also notable that nobody seemed to have any kind of attention to have like a clear pretty faces in this film. We are actually having like a what looks like a middle-aged couple that moves into the house with Julia having this very hideous haircut. <laughs> well, are, are, are you against 80s hair? Yeah, I am. It makes uh, Julia look 
probably even older than she would otherwise look. You know, you you can you can't fault the movie for the fact that during that time people used perms. I just might because there are plenty of 80s films that try all, to all with try, bad hair. May I m- that, mention that try where they're trying to purposefully avoid these fashion hairs of the time, smartly knowing that this will probably be away and out of fashion in a couple of years. But anyway, there, it's not important. I'm just saying that there most definitely is not. Pay no attention to Kari at this point. He's he's clearly making this up. If if something. 80s movies and the hairstyles were purely about perms and mullets. Yeah, and they went out of fashion in the 90s pretty quickly, so... So, so they did. But there, there yeah. no way was there during the 80s was there a conscious attempt by anyone to try to avoid the hair trends of that time period. I don't think so. When I look at some of the higher budget films of 80s... Well, just look at you know, your higher-end action flicks of the time. I don't think you will find mullets there. You find the mullets if they are, if the characters are supposed to be creepy, some kind of criminals and drug users. Well, Linda Hamilton herself was actually supporting a perm in the original Terminator. That's true. You'll find them, but it's a low production. It's still one of the action movies of the 80s. <laughs> Julia goes through the photo collection that she finds of Frank having some sexy time with several ladies. <clears throat> finds herself in the pictures as well. She seems to be at all in no way bothered by the fact that possibly Julia knew about the the habits of Frank. And she just didn't care. So she finds the pictures and destroys at least the one where she's being in. I believe this was not in the book. But it's the perfect way in the film to kind of get the viewer up to speed about the relation of them. Because in this, in the book universe, well, you can explain it with words what's going on, but here you have to kind of... Because Julia is alone, you have to somehow visually make the viewer understand what is going on. Then there's the mattress or a cushion that they're trying very hard to get upstairs. Seems to be extremely hard and heavy. And Frank is about to hurt his hand the nail. In between, they have put some exterior shots of the character Kirsty walking around town. But then Kirsty comes inside the house and greets her father. Looks like Kirsty is the most excited one out of the bunch regarding this flat. We're introduced to the fact that Kirsty and Julia are not in the best relations, but uh, Kirsty promises to be nice towards Julia. Too bad that Julia is going through a lot of shit during this film, and that also doesn't help, like, connecting with uh, Kirsty. So she's being a really a total weirdo throughout this film, Julia. And this was the first feature film of the actor Ashley Lawrence playing Kirsty. I just always thought that now that we're coming to the Julia and Frank flashbacks, I never believed the relationship much of Julia and Frank. Because Frank is really a piece of shit and doesn't say much, and Julia is kind of spellbound by the whole character. Already Julia is doing this weird stuff, lurking from the upstairs and not responding to Kirsty. Even before she knows anything about this, uh, Frank the Monster has not been introduced yet. Well, she has just actually gotten the chance to reminisce the old memories she has of Frank. I know, but then she gets really all weird. All of a sudden, it has such a power on her. 
<laughs> well, you know, that, that well, was the time of sexual yeah, liberation for her. Uh, the major, major point of the story is bo- both in film and in, in the short story is that Julia herself is and has pretty much maybe always been extremely frustrated with, with Larry. And Frank kind of is, is the complete opposite of, of Larry. And that, that is the, that is the thing that actually draws Julia to Frank in, in the story. That, that bad boy nature. Yeah, but it didn't end up in the film. Well, you, you, you do get it in, in film also. The, the short story goes more lengths into the connection to a point where in, in the short story, Julia feels the presence of Frank in the house even before, you know, the original spilling of the blood accident. And another difference is that in the original short story, the sexual relationship that Julia and Frank shared was much more brutal in its nature. Julia compares the, the lovemaking between, or the, or the sexual act between him and Frank all those years ago to a rape in the original short story. In, in the film, that whole sequence is shown more tender, kind of a more sweet. Yeah, I mean that. They filmed a bunch of stuff, and because of the sensor boards, a lot of that had to be left on the cutting room floor. Nobody really seems to know where all that stuff is, because it hasn't surfaced in the special features of the releases of this film. But then again, I, uh, and I might be wrong here, but I'm under the impression that the only parts that were actually cut for the film were the more graphical scenes of violence. And I heard about the sex moments as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good be. Good be. Of course. But yeah, then we have the scene where Larry has cut his hand and comes to consult Julia for help in the attic. Drops all the blood on the floor in high quantity once again. I can see like people like Roger Ebert and others seeing that this kind of a moment is not extremely original. Yeah, well, if you want to look for that, but uh, for God's sakes, there's more to come that is quite original in the characters of this film. Like, you know, we have seen many times that you spill blood somewhere and that might awaken some kind of a monster, or you spill something else and it awakens the monster. That's what happens here. But I cannot understand why people cling on to these things so much that they would go to the lengths to say that Hellraiser is not original film. Yeah, and on that notion, I have never actually seen the rising of the monster done in the same fashion as it is done in Hellraiser. With those images and with that composition of music and images tying together to give you that exact same feel. There have been, of course, attempts to make the return of the monster or the rising of the monster grandiose and epic on its scale. But I, I think that, you know, Hellraiser does it kind of kind of the best. But like in here the Franks returning and him growing from the floorboards and forming that that basic physical form that he does combined with Young's soundtrack really knocks it out of the park and makes that moment feel like this is the, the moment. This is something great in the film and its universe. Yeah, that works well. 
all this reverse blade photography and the prosthetics and the goo. So very practical effects. We have something that was and then was in some fashion, I, I suppose, burned and then played in reverse to give the effect that something is actually rising and getting its body together. And of course it looks exactly like that, but uh, it's well done. What do you think about the Kirsty and her sort of a boyfriend subplot in the film? Uh, in what way do you mean? It is not built that much if you if that's what you are asking. It's not built much, but it's necessary f- for the big rescue in the end, I guess. Uh, well, yes and no. The big rescue is is most anticlimactic at the end since it still ends up being Kirsty doing all the heavy lifting in the finale of the film. The poor shot just shows up and doesn't do a goddamn thing in the final confrontation. Seems to have no reaction much whatsoever to the monsters of the underworld, which I thought was kind of hilarious all the time. He seems like he's perfectly fine with these monsters and has exactly the same information acquired as Kirsty at that moment then. Well, he actually doesn't have a, that much information acquired. Like, he's completely clueless to basically anything that goes on in the film. Yeah, well, he's supposed to be clueless, but you don't really get that. You get that there's all kinds of supernatural shit happening in the house. Wind blowing and door smacking and monsters coming from every direction, and then they just smile together, and the boyfriend is like, okay, <laughs> happy times. I think we solved this, but oh, the monster is still coming. Yeah, but the boyfriend in the end, uh, all he actually gets from the experience is a collapsing house. And he also sees the monster. He sees the final monster. I mean, most of the entire confrontation is already uh, taken care of before the boyfriend enters the house. Then he gets an extremely quick look at the butterball Cenobite. As the floor collapses on the Cenobite and buries it. And then he runs to the, you know, the door, opens the door. And that is the only moment where he actually gets a good clear glimpse of any any of the monsters of the film. Yeah, well, also the reaction to the collapsing house is like, okay, I do this every day. Princess saved and let's get out. Happy times. But mostly at that point, you know, they are at the lower level of the house, very close to the door. So I can easily see how his take on that situation would be that, yeah, the princess is saved. Like all all they have to get do at that point is get through the door that is right next to them and they are off the house. Would you then make the case that these are Oscar-worthy performances right there from the guy? I don't see a problem in the performance. Okay, for me it was always kind of the distracting point in the end. Interesting. Because how how would you not be relieved and believe that this is an okay place to crack a smile if you are so sure that you are actually out of the frying pan? Well, because they are still in the house. And no explanation is given to the guy why the house is collapsing. Yeah, but then again, you don't need explanation on that point. All you need to know is that the house is collapsing, the girl is inside the house, you got into the girl, and the door to outside of the house is right next to you. It's few meters, you just, you know, 
grab the girl and get out of the door and you are all safe. It's not like the hell, you're like, there, there is no a mountain of obstacles between you and the safe space at that moment. Well, okay. I, I would not stop to have a little smile and a hug, Z, before I escape the full house, especially because I don't know what the hell is going on. I, on, on my end, would milk the hell out of that situation, because that would actually be the prime moment to make yourself look heroic. <laughs> More disgusting moments at the attic. There's something rotten on the ground. Suppose leftover skins of Frank and the rats already at that scene having a fiesta. And we see Frank, formation one of Frank the Monster. And goddammit, the acting of Claire Higgins here is distractingly bad. I mean, Claire Higgins shines when she doesn't have to do anything. Like, she's good at displaying this kind of a distracted woman that has uh, like a past that she wants to stay hidden but when she is actually pushed to to do the high emotion acting uh, there she doesn't shine to me but i i never took the took it as that it's actually supposed to be that high emotion acting well i mean you see the frank the, frank the monster for the first time uh, at the attic you would be screaming your lungs out for sure and yeah not convinced. Once again, the voice performances are a little bit wacky. Help me! <laughs> and especially when Julia comes to the attic for, is it the second time? And Julia's looking for Frank. And apparently Frank is just having some kind of a fun of his own. Because he comes near the windows in this fashion. <sighs> it was like more hilarious than anything else. But these are all memorable moments. For sure. And I... Enjoy the film. Don't get me wrong. I'm just going to be complaining. As I usually do, Frank needs more blood. He needs more. Which means that Julia has to get some more boys. More guys to spill their blood for Frankie. In the midst of all this, there's this scene in an extremely unromantic location. Is it like a subway station where Kirsty and the boyfriend share a quick kiss? Something like that, yeah. There's boyfriend's dream. There's feathers flying around. Somebody's on the table, spilling blood and crying like a baby. And there's a face of some random guy. Is it one of the... No, it's the boyfriend, I guess. But that's in 3207 or so. Yeah, my take was that that was supposed to be Larry, who he sees. Mm, okay. Yeah, well, it looks like an older guy, actually. So. Well, well, once again, the, the makeup in that quick shot is maybe not entirely up to par. It, it suffers the same effect as does Frank's torn up face in the very beginning of the film. Yeah, once again, not sure if it's important who this is. Never thought about it. It's just some horrifying dream with no special ties to anything. It gives Kirsty the, the subliminal feeling that there is something wrong with the situation, even though she at this point has no clue at what it is. Or Kirsty herself at least takes the dream as a, as a notion that something is wrong. Some kind of a hint that everything is not as it should be. Yeah, and meanwhile Julia is again busy to find people to get chopped into pieces. There's this bar scene. One of the very few shots that are filmed somewhere outside of the house. This guy is really creepy. 
Clearly the movie decides that deserves to be chopped. This guy, I think it's this guy, this victim at 3650 with his underwears now. It's my understanding that they filmed a shot where he was naked, but then the censors said, no, you can't have him naked, so they put some underwear on. I came across the notion that it was actually the dude himself or the, or the actor who decided that the scene character-wise yeah. would work better if if he would be nude. Yeah. In a way, I'm very happy that they did act that version of the, of the scene. Yeah, there's some interesting things about the way how US and UK reacted to the censorship aspect of the film. Because the UK was extremely terrified about the Julia whacking this guy with the hammer. But the sexuality was okay. And yet again, the other way around for the US authority. But that, that, that is a common contra- contradiction between the more European and US. Yeah. Usually the physical and graphical violence is way more okay in in, in US than it is in, in the rest of the world. And vice versa with the sexuality. In a way, I'm actually surprised that they managed to punch in one moment of a wobbly penis in this film. Uh, I would think that the... It's yeah. purely because everybody missed it. <laughs> and we were looking for the scene with Henrik where Frank the Monster does the... <sighs> and it is at 38.54. So it is. That's funny. It is a bit, I, I must admit. Or maybe it was like a sound of relief when he got some more skin around his body. Like, <sighs> awesome. It's, it's hard to say what it actually was meant to be. <laughs> Larry comes back home, Julia is moving one of the bodies to the next room. believe it's never explained what happens to the body. Nobody ever finds it there. Uh, Kirsty comes across one of the bodies at the very end of the film. Ah, when yes. it's been simply left rotting the, in the storage room. Very true. But that is one, of the, uh, one aspect of, of, of the film which also the book shares that Julia actually never has a clear game plan what to do with the bodies. Both of the film and in the original stories, she simply stores them away. Not in any way trying to factor in the fact that, you know, the bodies will start to rot and they will start to smell and they are bound to be found if they stay within the house. There is made the notion that she and Frank intends to leave the house at some point together and go to somewhere, which has never been actually explained what that somewhere is, as it's not important. But still, yeah, th- this is part where you can clearly see that she and Frank are simply freestyling it as they go on and they don't have the overall big plan how to make this thing work point by point. Yeah, this point rather irritated me when watching this film uh, because they spent so much time at the house and I think they could have even left the flat earlier on and I'm not sure why they spent time at the attic. Well, Well, Frank Frank does get his skin only at the very end of the film. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, obviously they can't live together as long as Frank is as he is. 
still feels a bit risky to go back to the attic once you actually have some kind of a skin. I'm not sure why you really have to. Well, if you want to like hide the murder aspect, then it's a good idea to take the skin of Larry for a second there. But is that meant to be to be forever? Or what's the master plan with, with that skin? And why would Julia ever accept that? That her husband's skin is on Frank because she wanted Frank and not Larry version zombie. It gets really weird in the end. It does get partly weird at the end. Especially since earlier in the film, Julia is protective of Larry. And does not want Frank to harm Larry per se. She is against Frank's notions that Frank could simply attack Larry at any point of time. But that is kind of, a, I, I guess, simply goes to the hastily made decisions that the pair has to do throughout the story. Yeah, and then like hiding the murder, that makes logical sense, but also comes off as just as a nice moment and opportunity for Frank to play around, to take the form of Larry. But to go to that length for just that purpose, and then again knowing that you probably are not going to wear that skin all the time. It reeks a bit weird. It's hard to say was Frank ever intending to keep Larry's skin, but at that point of the story, Frank is incredibly desperate to finally leave the house since he's certain that the Cenobites are after him, and they will start chasing him very soon. At which point the best course of action is go back to the attic when you have the full skin and go to the place where you were able to do your resurrection to begin with, which just might be the not the, the first idea that I would have to go back there, since uh, that's connected with the Cenobites in a sense. But then again, to get at least a bit more headway before the police come after you, you kinda have to take care of Kirsty, who is still an eyewitness to the murders, or is not not the eyewitness to the murders per se, but does know what has happened, and does for example know about the bodies. Yep. Julia has a different hairstyle in this one scene at 44.51, when she's holding the glass, and she really looks like evil at this moment, and I think that's the purpose of it as well. I guess I should go into more detail before we are crucified in this podcast. But, but she does look like some somebody who is plotting something very evil at this moment. And Frank is having a tobacco and explains the Cenobites to Julia. Now at this moment, Frank is desperate to get rid of Larry. Starts making a lot of noise upstairs. They find nothing. And Larry and Julia have a little bit of a not-so-romantic moment because the Frank the Monster is behind them. Just some grossness for grossness' sake. Frank cutting the the dead rat with the switchblade. It does kind of showcase the fact that at that point there is no more sources of blood to be found inside the house. Yeah. Kind of highlighting Julia at the point that, you know, she better act soon and get more victims inside the house or Frank is going to attack Larry out of desperation. Yeah, I guess there are, like, more discreet ways of showing that, but uh, that's one way of doing that. 
I mean, they, they can, did Frank ever give you uh, the impression of being a discreet kind of guy? No, true in character. But uh, this does end up being one of the more humanizing scenes for Julia, who at this point kind of is the most outspoken on his desire still to have Larry make it out of the, out of the proceedings alive, and and most notably goes against Frank and the notion that Frank has made that he could just attack Larry and take blood from Larry. Yeah. Now Kirsty is getting a little suspicious of the proceedings inside the house when she sees Julia inviting a unknown guy inside the house and finally meets Uncle Frank, gets into possession of the box and throws the box outside of the window. Fucking have it! Perhaps an interesting moment with the nuns outside who just give a quick look at Kirsty, but do not assist Kirsty in any way, just let her pass by. Given that I do not know any nuns personally, I'm not sure how this situation would unfold in most of the cases in the reality, but these are some pretty uncaring nuns. Kirsty's taken to the hospital, plays around with the box, because why the hell not, because you already know that that's related to Uncle Frank and uh, just reeks of disaster, this whole item. But, you know, the best course of action is to smile and keep fondling the box and open it, because that's just what you do. The box at that point is the best clue kind of to try to understand what the hell is overall going on. That it might be. And this is the most Hellbound Hellraiser 2-ish moment of the film when the wall of the hospital opens up and we get a look of this particular monster you probably remember the name of the monster uh, the engineer the engineer we, yeah which was actually the name of Pinhead in the original short story uh-huh. as as far as i've been managed to kind of a piece these these names and characters together and in, in here they have named this unknown monster who appears only in this film as the engineer. Yeah. This took a very long time to film and it was really complicated to shoot for them. And you can still see, well, I'm not sure if you can see some of the crew behind, but you can definitely see the device that is used to push the, the engineer towards Kirsty at some points. You you can see it partly during the chase scene, especially yeah. now on the DVD and Blu-ray releases. Yeah. In the v- original VHS, I remember that you could couldn't couldn't make fog make out the rig which they that they used to push the, the latex monster around. Yeah. Just goes to show you that in the end VHS is the supreme format for movie experiences. <laughs> So, what are the experiences when you go to the theater? Lesser experiences? It is the experiences where you can actually see the little goofs and the rigs that are being used to push around the monsters you use. Yeah, I give it to you that that, that there was... There perhaps were more of an aura of mystery to a film because you couldn't see so much with the VHS. Yeah, that, but it's not a it's not, it's not a good argument though to watch VHS. It, it it most definitely is a good argument to watch VHS. Tense moments are more tense if viewed on a VHS tape. Yeah, well well it helps too. 
make it harder to figure out what is going on because half of the picture is missing. That that also, that also. But there are moments when VHS is lower image quality and the fact that part of the image is missing. In my opinion, there are films where it has actually helped the overall feel and the uneasiness you feel as you watch the film. Yeah, now the rest of the Cenobites appear, things get all weird. I like the shot where, which looks like a inverted color shot where the bricks look black and in between you have light and lots of creativity went into these characters for sure and for some reason they keep changing these characters along the Hellraiser series I cannot understand why they couldn't at least keep the same Cenobites in the goddamn films they can't even do that and unfortunately they weren't able to keep the same actors for example I have to mention the woman Cenobite in this film which I'm sorely missing in the sequels because she just looks absolutely excellent in the film. She does. I'm also a huge fan of the Chatter Cenobite, which also was dropped out of the franchise after the second one. Yeah. It is, a, in my opinion, a crying shame that they didn't use the same Cenobites in the later installments, except Pinhead. In, in a way, I can kind of understand it, in a producer kind of a perspective, that you need to churn out more monsters for the hungry masses that they can oogle at as they stuff their mouths full full of popcorn. But at the same time, there is something I feel special in the original four Cenobites that is kind of lacking in the later ones that appear throughout the franchise. There is this aspect of systematic and calculated violence that has been done to them in a way how, for example, Pinhead's face, every line, every cut has been measured so that they are equal in length and equal in depth. And every, you know, pin has carefully been put on its place. And it does showcase to you that there has been a systematic consciousness behind each cut. And there has been a clear intent. Like, whatever has done that to Pinhead has known precisely what it is doing during the proceedings and how to do it. And that intent and that that systematic nature of the violence, I think, is something that was lost in the later Cenobite designs. Yeah, there's less details that I see in the Cenobites in the sequels. Definitely, like... At least from the part 4 onwards. Uh, there is an, in my opinion, the violence that that has been done to them appears more aggressive in its nature. In Hellraiser 3, for example, you, you have that one Cenobite who is a cameraman for the news group. And he has the camera kind of stuffed through his head. And that, as an act of violence, is kind of an extremely aggressive one. Like, that, that is taking the first instrument you get and just hitting it through someone's head. It's very aggressive notion. And contrasted that to, for example, Pinhead, who has clearly been cut in extremely careful and extremely measured way. Like, there, there you see someone who has taken its time to inflict that violence. Yeah, 
You don't see that in a xenophyte who simply has a camera stuck to, through his head or who has, you know, CD discs simply, you know, stuck into his head. Even though I loved both of the characters. <laughs> in I, their absurdity. Um, yeah, I I really do not support that. Yeah, I can see that. There, there, there are better Cenobite designs in some parts of the franchise. I give it that much. And some of the later designs kind of, at least partly, get back into the notion of how the Cenobites were here, but I kind of feel that they were most systematically designed in the first two, or in the case of these original four Cenobites. Kirsty makes a deal with the Cenobites, letting them know that their old friend Frank Cotton has indeed escaped. That's an interesting scene in the sense that Pinhead has the legendary line, we will tear your soul apart, and in the acting you can see that, in a way, He's showing his anger, but in a way, he's also holding it back. Like he was instructed to, like the Cenobites were instructed to. That they are just kind of, just the messengers of pain, not supposed to show emotion. Yeah, to me they have always been kind of a municipal workers of hell. Mm. Like, like, right. like the, your average government official. <laughs> so, so, someone who stays behind the desk and stamps the envelopes. Or makes the same goddamn boring decisions every goddamn day and fills in the paperwork. Yeah, that's a good one. The way how they act, how they precisely lack a clear aggression in the way how they speak, how they clearly does not have emotion or strong emotion behind their acts, and their role as simply as someone who is supposed to get to you or come to get to you if you open the box and summon them and take you with them to hell and then close the doorway or close the box after that. It kind of gives me that feeling of them simply being kind of like hell's rubber stamp. Yeah, that's kind of what sets the Cenobites apart from many other horror characters is the sense that you don't get the emotion. Very much so, because uh, typically your horror villain is, is precisely that. He's a villain. He's a monster. He's someone who is very aggressive. F- Freddy Krueger takes sadistic pleasure on the violence that he creates. He clearly enjoys cutting up people and he uses clear force. Like he has emotion when he hurts someone. And that is a kind of a running theme behind these horror movie monsters. And that is something that is lacking of the Cenobites. Instead, that is something that you get in Frank in Hellraiser. In every way and mean, Frank is more... He's basically the monster and the villain in Hellraiser. And the Cenobites themselves are not. And I've always liked that aspect in the first two Hellraisers. And that is something that really pisses me off to no end in Hellraiser 3, The Hell on Earth where they completely drop the ball and once again make Pinhead just your typical horror movie villain who wants to come to Earth, who has the drive to actually come to Earth and has the drive to hurt people and is all about souls, 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 I want souls for no good goddamn reason. Yeah, it's amazing that we get Doc Bradley to so many of the sequels. I understand it was kind of a labor of love, because 
It was his first movie and it seems he wanted to keep himself in the part. That is very much taking one for the team several goddamn times. Yeah, and but even he had to face the fact later on that when he did take a look at one of the scripts that was for the new Hellraiser film, he just had to say to himself that, okay, this is shit, I'm out. There are limits to the <laughs> hells that you have to go through in filmmaking. Popper Ducks sure as hell stuck with the franchise way more longer than was humanly required of him. Yeah, I wonder if he would come back for the remake. I guess that doesn't make any sense. But there's been a remake in the makings for several, several years, but it has been unable to get off the ground, really, because what I could find was that many people who were involved in the project just could not stomach the fact that they would be making like a teenage slasher film bearing the name Hellraiser. They wanted to put it to the rated R category, go all the way because it's the Hellraiser, and they did want, many of them did want, the official stamp of approval from Clive Parker himself. And without that approval, they would not have gone ahead. And many of them have been true to their words, and then they were laid off the project because of artistic differences or whatever the case was. Well, when it comes to the Hellraiser remakes, which... Have they now been going around for like 14 years trying to get the project off the ground? Uh, it is a curious case of every now and then someone getting extremely excited about the possibility and then it coming to a dead end because of the artistic differences. Something I really haven't been able to understand is the production company's kind of a interest in having these French extreme horror directors like Pascal Laguerre tied to the project who, judging by their previous films, would be precisely right or could potentially be extremely right to make a Hellraiser remake but at the same time are way too graphical, way too violent in their films to ever satisfy a production company that wants to make somehow a film that can be marketed to teenagers. And so we were supposed to discuss, I guess, deeper into the fact that Frank has taken the appearance of Larry. It is a little bit weird, but it's some kind of a temporary sick game just to play with Kirsty. That's my take on it. It doesn't serve any other function except for the fact that it gives them a getaway plan outside of the house without anyone noticing what the hell is going on. Except, of course, Frank goes to great lengths to show the Kirsty that he's not really Larry, he's actually Frank, Uncle Frank, you remember me. And therefore, the plan is to kill Kirsty, right? Pretty much, yeah. The decision to take Larry's skin at this point is, in my opinion, it's it's pure act of desperation. Like, now Frank can no longer wait and he simply has to take the first skin he can get his hands on. But it does kind of a cinematic and thematically it does loan a lot to the scenes with Frank and Kirsty because what you have here thematically when they interact between each other is Frank wearing Kirsty's father's skin. And for example, the notion that Frank makes 
come to daddy. It, it kind of has that extra layer on it. It, it. it is a bit more sick because Frank is wearing Kirsty's daddy at that moment. I like that twistedness. Yeah, and like a standout performance from Andrew Robinson. I would choose him as, as said, like the best performance of this film. Where, of course, he has the added benefit that he has these kind of a two roles to play here. But yeah, Andrew Robinson was into the idea and did a great job. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous, of course, to, you know, take the appearance of somebody else and is wearing the kind of the dead skin of someone else on his face for the situation. And But uh, it's believable enough. Uh, wearing someone else's skin is go-to solution in horror medium. But this is not the first time that this stunt has been pulled off by the villain of a horror story. Uh, Leatherface comes to mind as someone who precisely made a huge point about wearing someone else's skin. And there is also, if I remember correctly, where there, was there a Junji Ito's horror story where bad guys, they had lost their own skin. And they were preserving their own skins and wearing those skins as they walked outside of their own home. Kind of to give it the appearance to everybody else that everything is normal. But you know, once they were inside, they took their skins off. Yeah, the Come to Daddy is one of the most remembered, one of the most remembered lines of this film. There's, of course, plenty, plenty more. But one brilliant thing that was left on the screen was the moment when... Frank's, or, well, Frank's and Larry's skin is being torn apart, and Frank makes the line, Jesus wept, and originally, as you might know of Henrik, the line was, fuck you, but the actor Andrew Robinson thought it was kind of banal to use at this moment, and he went straight into the Bible, and the, or the Sunday schools, and came up with this iconic horror line. Props for him. For that. And most definitely props for him for that. Yeah. And this is this of course is remembered along with the legendary lines such as We have such sights to show you and the beginning and the ending line of the film, What's your pleasure, sir? But yeah, so Kirsty fights the Cenobites <laughs> That's kind of a hilarious moment where Frank is somehow unable to find Kirsty for one moment and Kirsty goes in a very noisy fashion to cry to the hallway and then is immediately found by Frank. Escapes Frank's switchblade long enough that Frank is now captured and taken into the chains of the Cenobites. And my favorite scene of this film is now there when Kirsty is playing with the box trying to get it to the basic form at which time Pinhead raises from behind of Kirsty and says, we have such sights to show you. It's the most hellish moment of this film for me. With, of course, complemented by the Christopher Young's extremely good soundtrack and the so-called hell spells in the background. You know, the special effects are rather dated, Henrik. That they unfortunately are. I must confess to that much. Yeah. As much as I like the ending of the film, the fact is that the yellow light that kind of burst out of the Cenobites as, they are, as Kirsty closes the box is pretty dated at this point. Yeah, I mean all the kind of uh, lightning effects in this film 
seem a little bit weak even for the time. Of course the budget was kind of low, 1 million, and which is about a little over 2 million in today's value. So, kind of low budget. Uh, very low budget and... I don't know if there's anything that really is still st standing out today. I mean the prosthetics are kind of quirky and kind of as outdated as the lighting effects. But no, it's not a big deal. It's just, it's kind of a part of the spirit of the film. It is, and the, the film's defense, I don't know what would be the best way to actually showcase what is happening. Like the banishment of the Cenobites. How would you make it effect-wise? It's not the most easiest concepts to kind of uh, create on a film. It, it's not like, for example, stabbing someone with an extremely large knife or hitting someone in the head with a hammer, which is extremely kind of easy to grasp what you have to do. But banishing someone back to hell by forcibly closing a gateway, that's kind of harder to visualize or imagine how to visualize it. Yeah, no biggies. But we have Henrik completely skipped over the homeless guy who likes to eat bugs. We see him in the middle moments of the film and then he returns with a vengeance to the final scene. Where we see the actually quite impressive uh, dragon that flies away and the movie then completes. I like the dragon. Yeah. I, I like it too. I also liked kind of the concept of the homeless guy as, as this protector of the box. Someone who once is supposed to keep a distant eye of it and if time be, you know, make sure that it is retrieved and bring back to the original seller. And funny how the memory goes in the head that you would see the dragon actually flying, but we actually never see the dragon flying, we just see him being kind of pissed off around the flames and then we see a camera flying away from the main characters and goodbye. It does show the strength when film strongly implies that something does happen. Yeah, 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 good example. What's your pleasure, Henrik? I, I, I would guess that it would be the feminist imagery during the ending of the film, when Kirsty banishes the Cenobites by closing the box. Do we have something to say about the most hellish experiences in our life? In this podcast. Well, you are free to make any confessions you want. Well, I thought about it, but I couldn't come up with anything that's spectacular. But the, in my youth, there have been moments where I have thought that I've been close to death, for example. Once I was in the middle of the night with my friends when we were like 14 or 15 in the middle of this huge bridge. And we were crossing it. And on the other side of the bridge... There are this bunch of young hooligan-looking, what appear to be a, like a drug users. They are crossing the paths of me and my friend, and they start beating up my friend. We survived the situation, nothing then much happened, except the kicking of my friend and him losing all his money. And also on one occasion, <laughs> I was in Poland, so more recent times, waiting for my kebab, while this other guy behind us... He's starting to get irritated by the fact that we speak Finnish. And then he says that, what are you talking about, me or Poland? And he gets really irritated and shows us his knife. That if you speak any shit about me or Poland, then you're going to get knifed, basically. Fortunately enough, 
the girlfriend of this guy had more brains than the guy and was able to convince his wonderful boyfriend to leave the kebab line and go do some other activities. Yeah, there there uh, certainly is something with you and people stuffing knives at your face. Yeah, yeah, seems like it. Uh, those are probably the highlights. I haven't been able uh, able to get closer to Pinhead than that. You have spent your fair share of time in Rovanimi, though. Well, I'm surprised if you haven't come across some kind of a drug-fueled moments. That's the reputation of Rovaniemi. Well, I, of course, during the years I have had my shared number of close calls and almost biting it. But, I don't know, none of those instances have kind of stayed with me as a hellish moment per se. Those moments, of course, have been pretty intense and at that time not at all pleasant, but, you know, after that moment has passed, I kind of am not feeling them anymore in such of a negative light as to describe them as hellish moments. Well, they were hellish moments at the time, but that was the point, not how they feel now. Yeah, well, in in that sense, yeah, sure, there, there has been, you know, you know, close calls. Moments where the situations of making a film podcast were nowhere in the near future, so to speak. Yeah, you couldn't get your therapy session right here on the Flick Lab. Premiere and box office. Budget was somewhere between 900,000 and 1 million of that time. Of that time's currency, inflation adjusted for 2019 would be 2.13 million. Gross in USA was 14.5 million. Inflation adjusted, it's, it's, well, it's something like 30 million. Roger Ebert fucking hated this film, gave it only half stars. The key quote was from his review the following. <clears throat> I have seen the future of implausible plotting, and his name is Clive Barker. Who goes to see movies like this? What do they get out of them? I like good horror movies because I enjoy being surprised and sometimes even moved. But there are no surprises in Hellraiser, only dreary series of scenes that repeat each other. What fun is it watching the movie mark time until the characters discover the obvious? This is a movie without wit, style or reason. And the true horror is that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize its bankruptcy of imagination. End quote, Henrik. So, <clears throat> you wanna go first? Well, there really is... I mean, it is the man's opinion, so I'm not really... Like, everyone is titled in the opinion, even in the wrong ones. Kind of a more interesting than Ebert not liking a horror film is the fact that Ebert kind of made himself out to be the arch-nemesis of Parker through the later years. Yeah, I myself am not like the biggest, biggest fan of Hellraiser, and as said, I actually remember looking down on, on Hellraiser, and I really didn't think it was much worth of my time. But now when I'm older, I've found much more value, and if anything, there's no bankruptcy of imagination, or on the extreme contrary, once again... Roger Ebert, I can't understand this guy. It's his opinion, but obviously there is creativity in this film, so I don't know what the hell he's even talking about. Ebert famously has had a problem with films that which he has felt are too cynical and not happy enough. That is the 
argument that Ebert has more times than once brought up when discussing especially horror films. I guess he would be the biggest fan of Halloween 2 from 2009, going by that fact. But I mean, sure, there's a lot of tropes here, as mentioned, like some kind of a trigger, like flood, in this case, awakening the monster, but in the minimum sense, you just have to admit the creativity is on the table that was put into creating the Cenobites. It comes across as totally disingenuous to claim Hellraiser lacks creativity, but but hey, I guess it depends on what kind of artistic experiences you're coming from. I mean, maybe Ebert had seen Pinhead type of characters in like hundreds of films before Hellraiser, but I seriously doubt that. I more believe that it is simply the... Uh, kind of the more cynical nature of the film, which once again was the fact that Parker Ebert. Yeah, well, why not find the artistic merits in that as well? Yeah, but the, the kind of the notion, and this, this is something that, you know, I've run across in Ebert's, especially some of the letter exchange that he has had with, with film creators. Uh, for example, this extremely shitty and poor quality independent horror film Chaos, which Ebert hated from the bottom of his heart, but he had an exchange with the director after his review, and from that it kind of came clear that Ebert likes films from which he can he can exist with with a happy feeling. Like he likes films where where the last feelings you get are of hopefulness and happiness. He does not like films which leave you with a downer feeling. Yeah, it's a common problem for many critics that are seen as the critics that you should follow, the big ones. I feel like they look down on films that show some gross aspects and look up on (laughs) films that are beautiful. But when it comes to this review of Roger Ebert, his review again had many factual errors, so I'm not even so sure he saw the same movie that we did. Like, looking at it now during the internet age, it, it is downright kind of... It's a bit embarrassing how much he shows he was not paying attention during this film. Well, the dialogue from, of this film, I think it ranges from brilliant to banal, or not so well executed. It's kind of a mixed bag, mixed bag, but yeah, I enjoy it. Cinematography, beautiful, very creative, if at that, theatrically tacky by today's standards. You know, when you look at the execution, when the Xenobites for the first time appear, you have the light oozing from behind the building, and then the light is being put against the Xenobites. The whole kind of reveal is kind of a slow, and looks kind of technical. But we have to remember this was relatively low budget film and there's only that much you can fuck around with the sets and the lighting also time-wise because it's a complicated scene. But no, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> it just looks a little... It looks like they didn't have enough time to make it more smooth. I know, but I should really shut the fuck up because I enjoy it. Release versions. Released on Blu-ray by Anchor Bay already in 2009. But then Arrow Films re-released an improved 2K transfer in 2015. And there's a bunch of different audio tracks for this film with varying 
quality levels. So, but the different versions are deleted scenes. The, well, the, the film first received an X rating and then had to return to the cutting room floor. Uh, these scenes were cut. There's uh, two and a half shots where excised from the first hammer murder, including a close-up of the hammer lodged into the victim's head. Uh, there's Julia murdering one man, the actor playing the victim, wanted to be naked because it made sense to him, so the nude murderer was, was shot but ultimately cut. There's close-ups of Kirsty sticking hand into Frank's stomach, and this reveals the guts. There's a longer version of the scene where Frank is being torn into pieces by the Cenobites hooks and in the final shot where the head explodes and brain is splattered all around and then there was the more explicit Julia Frank scene with plenty of spanking but the <laughs> MPAA would have been okay with two spanks but three was then considered obscene seems kind of they don't even know where to set set the limits and just pulling it as they go or you know maybe perhaps there's uh, like a spanking guideline book lying somewhere in the corner of MPAA offices from 1987 and this is this is how much spanking you can have in one scene or in one film a spanking in any movie is a precise science <laughs> as it turns out as his head hammering as his head hammering I'm actually more surprised that uh, head hammering was was touched upon by the board I was kind of expecting that the spanking was to be left out but Graphical violence. Yeah, I guess the hammering had more to do with the certain close-up where the hammer was punched into his head, clearly. But, uh... And most likely, yeah. But then again, you know, like, Friday the 13th, ring any bells? Well, of course, we're talking about the UK authorities here now, so... Yeah, should have tried, uh, simply tried it to get out of the gates in the US in the first place, and after that, bring it to UK. <laughs> yeah. But then there would not be wobbly penises, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it's a win-some-lose-some situation. How's the legacy of Hellraiser? Well, it's one of the more inventive horror films, along with Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Exorcist, wouldn't call Friday the 13th very original, but it's one of the more successful and more, one of the more known and well-remarked horror franchises, or, or, or horror stories, rather. One of the classics. Just a crying shame that the overall legacy at this point is pretty badly damaged by every other film that came after the second one. Yeah, I don't know what the hell they were smoking. Was it uh, marijuana or as of an octopus? But you you know you have nine sequels so far, and they could have just at least gotten some directors who would have respect for the vision, original vision of the of Clive Barker and get some of the same feeling back into the sequels, but as you see in the sequels, you know that they are really tormenting these characters. Uh, then again, I, I don't know, may, maybe the curse of Hellraiser was that the original ideas and the original themes behind the film were kind of so untypical, so, so new and so big that no one else later on could fully comprehend or grasp them. And that would explain why immediately after Parker left Hellraiser franchise, the next thing that, that they do is they make Pinhead act and operate just like, well, your typical horror movie villain. 
Yeah, at least when Doc Bradley left the franchise, then you start to see these people who replace him. There's at least one of those sequels where you see in the trailer already and in the still shots that they have completely lost the essence of the character in the sense that you have a pinhead who seems to be extremely angry, showing emotions, which you haven't seen, at least in these original films with Doc Bradley. So it seems they are losing the losing sense of, of their characters completely and utterly. That can to any everyone's defense, I... Well, going by some of the later outings of Parker himself in the franchise, not having read the latest two books, but some of the comics of where Parker has, himself has been penning out the story, I kind of feel that even Parker has lost the main points of Hellraiser as the time have gone on. To a point where the hell of Hellraiser has, in my opinion, it has started to look more like a Christian version of hell. And the Christian imagery has kind of taken a larger foothold in, in the way how the hell is being envisioned. And also, in my opinion, Pinhead himself as a character has started to make plans and have plans that are in motion. Throughout all this, he also starts to have a personal stake at the proceedings and he also starts to have more opinions and and well feelings about situations. He's not so much emotionally outsider of what happens. Yeah, at this point I'm kind of even astonished that Clive Parker would even care about making anything related to Hellraiser series, at least in the movie sphere. Last that I'm aware of Parker being involved in this, Parker himself wrote the remake script many years ago and delivered it to the studio who knows how long time ago, but nothing has materialized on the screen since. Uh, but except, of course, one of the straight-to-DVD or straight-to-video Hellraisers, so... <laughs> it's hard to understand what is going on here. The first guess would be that Hellraiser still, for Parker himself, is the, is the most well-known franchise that he still has under his name. Of course, and the monetary benefits. Uh, yeah, uh, and something that fans would keep pestering him on. And maybe that kind of explains why Parker still feels that he likes to return to Hellraiser to tell more stories in that universe, either in comics or, or in book form. I, I kind of feel that I myself hope that Parker himself would also just walk away from Hellraiser at this point. Seeing some of the comic, uh, the latest comic run which Parker himself was involved, I also I don't anymore see Parker himself being fully at the reins of of his original concepts in Hellraiser Mythos. I kind of get the notion that Parker himself also has lost it. Quickies, favorite performance. I'm extremely split on the middle here. Unlike you, I I like the performances. In, in Hellraiser, I did not have a problem with any of the actors. I kind of liked how low-key their performances were. 
I mean, in a way, it doesn't doesn't really bother me because there's a lot to like in the film. And but if I would personally go looking for the best performance, then Andrew Robinson would be my pick. I I guess I would also go with Robinson. I am extremely tempted, of course, to give it to Doc Bradley, who I also feel makes spectacular work as as Pinhead. But mm. Andrew Robinson's character in the film gives him more more range where to play performance-wise. And Robinson does take advantage of those moments. It's it's kind of an unfair comparison because where, where Robinson can p- basically play two characters and at the later half of the film he can go all in in portrayal of Frank and have that what Frank was, was despicable. 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 Moments. Bradley has to keep his role extremely low-key and make sure that he gives the least amount of emotion at any scene. But, yeah, if you have to pick one, Robinson has the most range. What he does in, in the film is despicable. Yeah, Doc Bradley delivers pinhead right here, right now. But if I would go the nitpicky route, I would say the Doc Bradley's performance here is a little bit shaky when compared to the other performance says later in the series when he does pinhead. But yeah, I mean, I enjoy it thoroughly. It's a tricky situation huh, in your first film with having such of a amount of makeup and having a weird role where you have to be kind of pushing yourself to, you know, you're trying to avoid the emotions when doing the performance. You're limiting yourself as an actor. And I've come to understand that that actually is a hell of a hard task for an actor to pull off. Yeah, so I heard. Favorite scene, Henrik? I guess it would be that moment when Frank first comes together at the attic room. I would say when Pinhead, well, as already mentioned by me, appears and raises from behind of Kirsty near the end, and then Christopher Young's hellish notes play, and Pinhead says the eternal lines. We have such sights to show you. I get chills down my spine every time. Same thing here. The scariest moment of this film for me. Favorite quote. Or in other words, favorite quote. Uh, this is surprisingly quotable movie. Especially thanks to Pinhead's lines, which are pure quote, but... Yeah. I I guess I I still would pick Jesus wept. Yep, it could have been that almost as well. But I will just go back to we have such sights to show you. Favorite kill. Ah, uh, Frank take two. Mm, yeah, Frank of course when he's pulled into pieces for the second time. Yeah, Jesus wept. As as graphical as this film gets. That is the high point when it comes to the graphical violence here in Hellraiser. It is, and that brings us to first image that comes to mind. And this one is not very hard to think through. For me, it would be Jesus Wept scene. On my end, it would be the four Cenobites coming together in the hospital. Yeah. Well, which image best exemplifies this film? What would you... What would... Henrik put in a poster art for this film, if you got free hands, or something to that effect. I guess I would go with 
the actual image that they use in the poster, which is Pinhead holding the box. Okay, and if we forget the posters, what image best exemplifies the film? For me, I would probably go with Frank sitting legs crossed amongst the candles and playing with the puzzle box. I guess I would take the image of the Cenobites in the attic room when they have that that small group shot. Yeah, what took you out? Actually, nothing took me out of the film. I was pleasantly surprised how well paced this film is even today. Like I, when watching this film, rewatching this film once more for the episode, and having seen the film for a number of times before, I, that, I once again met that moment when I, I was sure that I've just watched a couple of scenes of the film, and I just put the DVD on the player, and then I quickly paused it to grab myself a next cup of coffee and notice that it had been running for 45 minutes already. (laughs) Yeah, for me, there's nothing really new that I haven't really already said before, but there are some performance issues here. Kirsty played by Ashley Lawrence and Frank played by Sean Chapman, in my opinion, deliver the unfortunately the least believable performances. I know that Sean Chapman was doing a certain thing here and he was it was a really aware choice of what he's doing right here this minimal performance thing but eh, it's a little theatrical too theatrical not that it would be a big problem once again but what pulled us in to the world of hellraiser well for me the cenobites almost pulled me to hell so i'll go with that to me the during the first time seeing this film, the moment where I really kind of was put in very first time, when I first time realized that this is something completely different, was at the very beginning of of the film when, after Frank has been torn apart for the first time, and there is that lingering shot at the attic with Pinhead and the other Cenobites kind of appearing to the image. And to this day, that still is kind of the moment when I actually remember that I'm actually watching Hellraiser at the moment. Yeah. Scissors of Sacrilege. What would you sacrilegiously change in the film? I actually would leave it as it is. Yeah, that there is nothing that I would find interesting cutting as well or altering. Nothing really. Of course, now we could play around and improve the special effects, but that's not really... That, yeah, that that would be kind of a... But I, I don't feel that that would be a fair jab to take at this portion. Yeah, no. No. Did we look at our Rolexes? Nope. Nope. Hendrik, would you recommend Hellraiser? I actually most definitely would recommend. It is an interesting take on, on horror film... It's an interesting take on your typical expectations of a horror film monsters. And in my opinion, it's very hopeful film at the very end of it. So most definitely, yeah, check Hellraiser. Yep, please do. I think the idea and the, the concept and, you know, especially the memory that you have of the visuals afterwards is even better than what you really end up seeing special effects wise on the screen but uh yep 
definitely catch Hellraiser. It's one of the more inventing horror films out there in the 80s and in general, especially during the times when most of the horror films were doing the same tropes over and over again. And Henrik, we have a bunch of creepy, made up Xenobites in the attic with costumes made of supposedly leather being very gothic and I don't know exactly if this is a good bridge and what it whatever it might have to do with with uh, homosexuality but uh, please try your best there was some notion that you wanted to make about gay razor I detest the word you are using here at the moment <laughs> It's the word of your choosing for your document. It, it most definitely is not. There, there is no word document of that name. As noted before, in the book you have this starting scene with Frank surrounded by the candles and there's some bodily fluids flying into every direction with this orgasmic moment as mentioned before. And this brings us to, I guess, in a sense, to the sexuality of Clive Barker, and he's a homosexual, and you're arguing tonight that there are some very deep, even, underlying messages of homosexuality in the film, which I have never even, it never even crossed my mind. But, I'm not saying that there aren't, so let's hear it. Uh, to be honest, yeah, I, to myself, am, am not the most versatile on the subject. The first notion, I guess, I have to of course, make before we proceed any further is that in case it hasn't been obvious in the podcast before this, I myself am extremely straight. Extremely straight person. Just so we get it out of the way. Uh, just so yep. we get it, get it out of the way. I, I am insecure. So in, in that sense, I personally might not be the most qualified person to touch upon the subject. But uh, some time ago, I did come across, and this is something where I have to give out a shout out to YouTube channel Cook Philosophy, who actually first time brought into my notion that when it comes to Clive Parker's works, especially his films, there is a debate going on whatever, whatever or not Clive Parker's films qualified as gay cinema. And usually the main, or the first arguments that are brought up in the debate, to my understanding, is that they obviously are, since Parker himself is a gay, openly gay author. And also the fact that in a lot of his films there are scenes which I very well can believe would be pleasing for, uh, well, for gay man's eyes. Like, for example, in Hellraiser we have Frank in his black leather jacket, all wet from the rain, and later on, that this, this is an image which is kind of repeated in, for example, Nightbreed. Well, if I can interrupt in the sense, uh, just to point out that I don't see any connection between leather and homosexuality unless you're kind of looking, looking to make the connection via the... I the subculture with leather that is associated with gays and uh, uh, Tom of Finland type of art, which, well, you could make connection of leather with many other things as well. I'm, I'm not so much making connection with, with leather, even though, as you pointed out, Tom of Finland imagery 
of course would be a go-to resort on the matter, but what, what I was aiming more at was the fact that Parker shows you a muscular male body with a leather jacket and well, in a way, or I myself could very easily believe that, you know, the male figure Parker shows in his films could be a pleasing for a gay eyes. Uh, are you saying Pinhead is muscular? I never made that notion. No, I'm, I'm making, no, I'm saying that Frank is muscular. Uh, okay, well. To make it more obvious what I'm trying at, if, if you would switch Frank, in the scene where he comes to Julia's front door in the rain. If you would switch Frank with, uh, let's say, 28 to 35 slim brunette with the white t-shirt, with the leather jacket, I could have a raging hard on. I don't know, well, eh. it, feel, it feels a little bit forced connection from the YouTube channel <laughs> to make, but I, I can see where this is going. Yeah, yeah, uh, and to YouTube channel's defense, it's not their connection. This is me. Okay. Pure and simple. So because uh, we have a muscular guy who kind of looks like Tom of Finland character, and there are people who are characters who wear leather, this kind of sums up as being gay. Eh. Uh, no, uh, the argument I've run across is more that that a gay audience could find the ma- men Parker casts in his films sexually pleasing. But why? Why? It could be a, any other type of guy as well. Well, yeah, but I, I, I guess it's more than any large reason. It more just comes to a figure or a body which you find pleasing. Yeah, or pleasing but for like, Julia. Yeah, or pleasing for Julia, but like this is kind of the the opposite of, for example, a Bond girl in in James Bond films, where the Bond girl is obviously casted for the male audiences to be sexually pleasing for the male gaze. And I kind of see the point that similar fashion, like a Bond girl would be, and well. Or more often than not, I guess, or sexually pleasing for a straight man's perspective, a male figure can be sexually pleasing for a gay man's perspective. Yeah, well, mm, I, yeah, we're kind of getting to the territory where I'm uncomfortable, not because of the gay stuff, uh, be, but because of questioning the appeal of some characters. For example, I would guess that the Julia character is not very appealing to a straight guy, or I, I don't think she is meant to be as a very appealing, or, or sexually appealing character here. I or don't Does she do something for you? Uh, not me particularly, no, but well, for, for example, you know, that one scene where she looks like the evil witch of the north, as you pointed out, <laughs> I, I could see someone else having a raging hard on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, I I I I have friends who could like that sort of thing. Not me yeah. personally, of course. Of course not. Of course not. Heaven forbid. Yeah. Basically, the whole point is is besides the argument. Like I, I'm merely at this point, I'm merely laying the groundwork for that is going on behind the scenes of Parker's films about whether or not 
do they qualify as gay cinema? Yeah, well, if we are going to uh, argue about sex, sex appeal, I guess more attention to that is paid in the male character in this film. But I'm not yeah. the most most best to maybe to uh, kind of quantify that. Well, I, yeah, I guess neither one of us are since whatever actually floats your boat, so to speak, is very personal. Mm. Yeah, but the fact of the matter, okay, we have muscles, we have like maybe pose or clo- poses or clothing that makes the character a little bit more appealing than without that. So Yeah, and it- like uh, and that combined with Parker's own open homo- homosexuality is the go-to kind of argument why Parker's films should be counted in as gay cinema. And the counter-argument to that point, the first counter-argument, most typical counter-argument is that they do not qualify as gay cinema because there is no open gay presentation in his films. His written stories, some of them have openly gay characters, but his films most definitely do not have a character who is stated homosexual. And this is usually the reasoning behind, you know, the counter-argument. Parker's films ain't gay cinema, and they don't have a gay presentation because there is no openly gay character in them. Yeah, well, uh, it's not surprising that if you have somebody who is gay that you're going to have different perspectives on characters, and I don't think it's more complicated than, than that. And I'm not sure if that in itself still qualifies as gay cinema, but you have some more ammo in your pocket, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm merely, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be nuanced here, tiptoeing around the subject, because as a straight man, once again, this is kind of a one of those situations. Should you or should you not touch this whole thing with a 10-inch pole, because there lies the danger that the straight guy ends up explaining to gay persons what is and what is not gay presentation in films. And I'm trying to avoid doing that mistake as hard as I can. And because of that, I'm trying to basically talk about anything else but the subject matter at hand itself. Yeah, it's maybe better to not talk about polls when discussing these topics. Says the man who... (laughs) <laughs> extremely largely built around the holes of a plot variety. <laughs> it just happens naturally. Haha. <laughs> but yeah, like th- th- there is the argument, and that is not something that I or the debate is not something that I myself found out. It it was something that was pointed out to me by the YouTube channel and. I kind of got my first bearings on even understanding the subject from Cook philosophy. Do not try to claim ownership on the findings of others, you know, uh, that needs to be pointed out. But from that standpoint, like discussed, Parker himself was born 52. He was something like 18 when he first identified himself as gay, so that would be something somewhere around 1970s, and that most notably was not a very good time in itself for gay population worldwide at all. The UK had decriminalized male-on-male gay sex 
what uh, was it 1967 and e- even that came with with some caveats because the underlying theme was that it is allowed as long as no third party in any way is subjugated for the sexual intercourse between two males which basically laid the in responsibility of, of making sure that no straight person in any way comes into contact with anything that might have any resemblance to gay sex purely on the gay population and for example prohibited homosexual intercourse between two males in hotel rooms and even that was kind of a huge push for more accepting attitudes in Britain because before that Homosexuals were first allowed to be hanged as deviants and later on either be prisoned or chemically castrated. And even though the attitudes uh, towards homosexuality kind of worldwide were, was technically becoming more okay worldwide, there still was very underlying attitudes against gay population which Carver, I guess, highlighted in the 1980s AIDS crisis, during which many prominent political figures openly made the statement that, well, the AIDS crisis is the fault of gays themselves and they deserve it as a godly punishment for being sexual deviants. I bring all this out because that is the societal atmosphere where Help Out Heart was written and kind of also the place where Hellraiser as a film originated from. Mm. So there, there were kind of a, both in Britain and in US, there were very hard attitudes against gay population, even though it was technically now legally allowed to be a gay man, it still was not allowed societally. And so the best way to showcase that sexual frustration is to write a novel where where a guy is sperming around in the attic. Not maybe that. When it comes to sperming in the attic, I'm kind of accounting that as the fault of the of the splatterpunk genre. Like when you write splatterpunk, you have to shoehorn the sex in there somehow. But what are the other points? I would argue that the Cenobites themselves are a form of gay presentation in Hellraiser. I don't really see anything sexual about them. Uh, not sexual. Not, not in, in, in a sexual way, no. But I'm more looking from a societal standpoint. Like, approaching them from the standpoint of the quote-unquote other. Someone who is not part of the organism that is the surrounding society. Kind yeah. of like a gay population being pushed to the sidelines of the society. It's okay to hang them, it's okay to imprison them, and it's okay that they die in the hands of AIDS. Yeah, I understand that notion, but once again, if I may say so, it seems like a very forced connection to make, because the Cenobites, after all, still are the de facto bad guys here. They most I, definitely I, actually are not the bad guys. Like that, that is actually kind of a... Or to me, that is very much the brilliance of Hellraiser. 
and her- the first two Hellraiser films. We don't count the goddamn rest of the franchise in this diseased pile of arguments, which is this discussion. But but in the first two, they are not the bad guys. Uh... <laughs> to to to, to ki- ki- give you kind of a to to be even more rambling about the subject, you have your typical horror movie, which we all have seen many times, uh, like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street. And these films present to you an organism, something that exists already, is in a way it's a whole, and the organism has a status quo in itself. Like, you you have your Haddonfield, which is a nice peaceful town in Illinois. You have your Elm Street, which once again is nice peaceful town. And then you have an invading or corrupting outsider force. Michael Myers comes to Haddonfield. Freddy Krueger kind of uh, materializes in Elm Street. And this invading force, this other, the element that is not part of the original organism, most often is violent. Like Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger are, uh, they more often than not are more or less complete fucking assholes. Like Freddy Krueger is an open sadist. And they easily carry a so- even larger societal stigma with them. Like Freddy Krueger is a goddamn child killer. And later on in the franchise he's a downright goddamn pedophile. But all of them, including Pinhead or the Cenobites, are characters who come to disturb the peaceful surroundings. And they break that peacefulness by their presence of wreaking havoc on, on unsuspecting people. And... Nobody wants that. Not in Hellraiser. Well, okay, you could make the argument, yeah, but most of the time, no, and it wasn't even Frank's intention to get such pleasures. Well, the Cenobites don't do that shit uh, until Hellraiser Part 3. In the first two Hellraisers, they very much are asked to show up. They, They don't show up unless you summon them. For that, you need the clear attention. You need the thrive. You want to see them. Or you want to open the gateway. And that is when the Cenobites themselves show up. And the Cenobites themselves are actually not even interested in wrecking havoc in any sense. Well, in the first two films. Once again, it's a shitstorm from Hellraiser 3 onwards. But the whole modus operandi is that they come... And they take the person who has summoned them with them, as the rules demand. And both the film and the book uh, kind of make this notion that Cenobites themselves don't do what they do out of spite. In the film, Pinhead points out that what the Cenobites are, they are explorers of experience. Angels to some, demons to others. To some, Cenobites might very well be the answer to their prayers. And the book makes the same notion through Frank's perspective, where even Frank contemplates that it's very much possible that what the Cenobites' intentions are, they are not evil, their intentions are not to torture you. Their intentions are to provide you a sexualized experience. But that sexualized experience is so extreme. It's, it's once again, it's, it's that limit experience. It, mm. It's, it's so rough and it's so foreign to Frank that to him it's torture. 
But for example, in, in Hellraiser 2, with, with the Cenobites, Hellraiser 2 points out that Cenobites have once been human. And that they are humans who have kind of a wonder through their own hell, right? They became Cenobites after hell had no more surprises in store for them. And through this notion, there is the point that at some point they have accepted what the hell has to offer them. Because of that they can no longer be tortured by the hell because they actually enjoy it. I understand the connection that you can make that Clive Barker's imagination probably well has gone through such phases that you know you can unconsciously or consciously make the parallels here that okay well I am in this situation where my sexuality is not accepted by the society and I can kind of implement that in my horror film or it just comes unconsciously in the pages like that and yeah I can definitely see that but to call it gay cinema i don't know what what is the point what what are you saying with the with the gay cinema i don't i'm i'm saying i don't know if it if it was the clive barker's intention to draw the parallel or not but i don't still know it, uh, the effect is not so strong to me that you could kind of group it with like other obvious gay cinema films we dump it into that same group and say that hey this is gay cinema uh, well, to kind of uh, to approach that point piece by piece. Firstly, it of course may be that it was not Parker's knowing intention. There obviously was very much intention in the way how Parker defined Cenobites or how he approaches his monsters. Because the point Parker repeatedly makes his stories is that. He is sympathetic towards his monsters. They, it's the outside world that is, it, it is our world that is at fault and that is kind of a deceased and the monsters themselves are actually the sympathetic victims of the outside attitudes. People like you and me meet something which is alien to us and we qualify that as a monster and we approach that monster with hostility. And in Parker's stories, the monsters, uh, quote-unquote monsters, are more often than not, they are actually accepting and welcoming. In Hellraiser, the Cenobites are welcoming to everyone who has opened the box, and everybody else sees Cenobites as monsters. In Nightbreed, this is actually the main plot point uh, of the story, where the monsters try to have their own peaceful society, and it's once again the normal people, quote-unquote, who wreak havoc and are are attacking the monster population. There is the Skins of the Father short story where there is this whole deceased family dynamic and a family is trying to shelter themselves against an attack of monsters and later on it simply turns out that, well, the family itself is both physically and, if I remember correctly, also sexually abusive towards a child which actually is part of the monster. So, unlike in your typical horror film, where the monster has to be banished for the status quo to be reinforced, Michael Myers has to be stopped, Freddy Krueger has to be killed, so that the status quo can once again live long and prosper, Haddonfield can celebrate Halloween until goddamn 6th, 
film on the franchise and the brats on Elm Street can once again sleep nicely. In Parker's fiction, it's it's the other way around. In Parker's fiction, the monsters are accepting. They they are asking you to join them instead of being simply a force that is maleficent and has to be banished. Yeah, well, I'm still saying that in the first Hellraiser's Cenobites are the monsters because. But how how are they the monsters? Because what is the monsters thing that they do? Well, uh, homosexuals still doesn't go around the streets and if somebody goes uh, let's say somebody goes to a homosexual's back and takes uh, some kind of cryptical box from there and starts to pleasurefully touch this box and then this makes the homosexual to makes him to be allowed to start killing people randomly in a bar or at least the person who was pleasuring himself with the box and uh, no, but once again, I- I, uh, the box in itself is a gateway to sexual experience. And yeah, the... extremely negative ones. Well, extremely negative ones, but only extremely negative ones on the uh, on the side point of of you and me, of Kirsty and Frank. Once again, the fucking status quo, original organism. To the Cenobites, you know, it may be extremely pleasurable, and if you would learn to enjoy it. Who knows? I mean, some obviously have find it pleasurable. The the whole opening the box and taking you with them is kind of like yeah, well, in, to, in, well in, to contrast it, you know. Invitation, invitation, invitation to what? From uh, heterosexuality to homosexuality? I still don't kind of cannot make it make any sense. Well, you know, maybe going to a gay bar and making all the innuendos that you wanna. Try gay uh, a whole of uh, gay sex, and then having to actually go through with the experience. If if you are just trying it out and you are extremely straight, who knows? You know, maybe you find out that it was not pleasurable at all, and it was pure torment. Mm, yeah, I, I get what you're trying to do there, but uh, it, there's so many doors that you can open with this subject. That on one hand it works on this level, and then on the other hand. It might not work so well. Well, that that may uh, could be, but then again, I actually and uh, once again, this is something where where the straight man in me might be showing up. But I actually have a major axe to grind with your typical presentation of any subject matter. Be, be it your typical feminist presentation or being it your typical gay presentation in cinema, where I think that it's been. It's so goddamn ham-fisted, so goddamn obvious that I actually struggle to believe that the person making the presentation is serious and is not simply trying to do quote-unquote a thing just so that he can pat himself in the back and point out how how he's doing the thing and he's essentially, you know, this awakened filmmaker. To to kind of give give you a point on this, the TV series, uh, American Horror Story. I don't know, have you watched it? Uh, I think I watched like two episodes and I stopped because I got bored. Okay, okay. Well, uh, the third episode is, is about witches coming. Uh, basically, edgier Harry Potter in its core. Yeah, the two kids coming to the house of the guy and something like that. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, the two kids is coming to the house, and and right. it's it's some kind of a witch school, like yeah. yeah. However, yeah, the witch is coming thing. Well, there there is a token male character that the school is all women, but they do have their own Frankenstein experiment, which turns out to be this reanimated dude which hangs around in the house with, with the witches. This is your token male character in the witch's coven. And throughout the, uh, the season, there is a notion to be made that there is some kind of a badass warlock or some shit like that that is going after the witches. I don't remember exactly what is the big bad guy at the end of the season, but there there is this super powerful sorcerer or, or demon spirit or something like that. So at the very end of the final episode... There is the moment when the big bad comes to the common house and goes a hula below how he's going to kill all the fucking witches. The reanimated dude stands up to this guy in a protective fashion, like, you know, your knight in shining armor way. And the big bad automatically, you know, waves his hand and knocks the bastard to the wall. And at this point, the four witches form a line and one of them makes a notion we don't need a man to protect us. And it, you can, you can, you can easily see what they are doing there. This is the power girl moment. Yeah, like. Yeah. Where the season really showcases you that, you know, the female empowerment. This is female mm. empowerment, the moment. Yeah. And I'm not against female empowerment in any way, but doing it this way, it's so obvious, it's so forced, and it's so ham-fisted that I actually struggle to believe that the creators of the series are serious in their female empowerment message. The, the whole scene reads to me more like, you know, doing a circus stunt. Just so that you can actually go around and say that, well, I, I did the female empowerment thing. Look at this scene, I'm doing the thing here. I'm one of the good guys, right? I, I'm all about that feminism and shit. I'm doing the thing right here. Yeah. And I, I, I can't take it. I can't see the sincerity in there. And that is the same problem that I run into with many of the more obvious gay presentations in pop culture. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying you like Hellraiser because it's more under the hood. Undercover. Because it's mo- more under the hood. Right. Because, you know... To, to give you another example, uh, there, there was the UK series Queer Eye for Straight Guys, or something like that. It, it was Silla Silmala in Finland. Yeah, for the love of God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, but, but anyways, the series where, where, you know, there were the four gay men, and then they they do the, you know, the change for the straight guy, so that the straight guy becomes more appealing to women. <laughs> basically yeah. they they teach him some basic cooking and some basic manners and they teach him how to dress well at least better than he used to because all the straight dudes are complete fucking train wrecks at the beginning of the each episode and you get taught uh, a quick drink recipe and stuff like this you can you learn to dress nicely and ma- make a dinner and serve a drink so that you know you have a better luck with the ladies and that is very obvious gay presentation itself. It, I mean, it showcases four gay men enhancing the straight dude's life. But at the same time, the whole thing actually, it works around a stereotype. 
I know, I know. And uh, uh, yeah, gay men think think like women, basically. Yeah, there's a funny funny notion about that. I remember when this series was still running or finished a little while ago, and I was talking about this series with with my friend, and we actually did send. Was it for Nelonen that was airing this TV show? We did send to this TV channel a suggestion for a follow-up TV series that you could do in Finland. That was Milla Helvetin silmällä. <laughs> we uh, switched the roles in a way that it was now a straight guy who was giving like suggestions for a for a gay guy in some way, but uh, the details escape me. But you get the idea. Usually, when you reverse these situations, then you get the notion of why, how these are so ridiculous. Yeah, and kind of the underlying theme, the the reason why I'm hamping around this is that when being faced by a subject matter that is not directly accepted by by the mainstream society, there usually are. Two ways you can actually deal with the situation. The first one is outright rejecting what you are not approving. Mm. You you get you can hang the gay dudes, and once you can kill them outright, you can imprison them at least. And if that becomes too extreme, you know you can you can say that being gay is is okay. But but if you die in AIDS, you know it's it's the God's will because you are a filthy sodomite. Yeah. And other way is first neutralize the other and then accept it like for example typifying the gay men as the missing link between man and woman gay men are accepted and they are great thing because they are men who has women's brains in them and this way the society gets to actually define how you can be a gay man it, it's very okay that you are hey it's very okay that you are gay Because we sure as fuck do need that women brain in your body. And in in a way, I, I actually see that in a way, for example, how, for example, Pride Marches are being attacked today. Wildly, Pride March as an event is, is accepted societally. And usually no one goes in and outright tries to say that the Pride March in itself has to be banned. It's too much okay societally. So how the attack works is that you pick someone, one individual participant of that Pride March, who is too kind of extreme in his presentation. Yeah. The image of of that one participant who has attached dildos to his clothes, for example. Then you single out that image, that one participant... You highlight it to a fucking tenth potence, and then you extremely kind of a directly denounce that individual. But while you are doing that, you do it in a way that you no longer kind of a deal with the individual. You tie the individual in the gay community and the march as a whole. You you show the image of the individual, but the argument you are making is that gays are like the individual in the image. And because of this, Pride March is wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you, you, can, you can have your march as long as you do it how we want you to do it. Just about those images, it's... Yeah, you hear these horror stories sometimes that some little kid was 
as a part of a pride march with some family member, like dad or the mother. And they come across these people who are dressed in like questionable clothing in yeah, it's in, always... in, in in leather, showing some body parts in a way that that some little kids probably should not be exposed to. Or there, there's always a goddamn little kid in this argument, ain't there? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's terrible, and I think this kind of shit should be completely removed from the pride marches, but. What are you gonna do about these certain individuals who do that? It's unfortunate, but I don't think it's happening in a large scale. It does happen in more in some other countries than some others. For example, I've never seen anything like that in Finland or Poland. Or but now to tie this again to the Hellraiser. Well, since you made the notion, I actually have a bit different take on should it be allowed or not. Because okay. I, I, I think that those individuals also have every right to be, well... Disturbing. Be yeah. like they are. E- even though it's not very well necessarily pleasing to my eye, personally, since I am a straight man. But, I, you know... I, I'm struggling to think who would actually find the pleasurable part in that to their eye. Well... Uh, if, if we would, if we, if we are talking about this leather motherfuckers in in this in these parades i think we should approach it from the perspective of would you accept these people walking around like in half-naked costumes or sexually questionable or exposing costumes in the streets with the whole bright march removed from the picture no probably not well that is how i actually see that Gay presentation might actually tie into Hellraiser and in Parker's work. Because the case that Hellraiser, on the other hand, makes is that you should actually accept it. That person is the other. The gay population is the other from the mainstream population. And that individual is other inside the gay population. And Hellraiser's take on the otherness is that it should not be neutralized. The tiger should not lose its claws, but instead it should be the surrounding society who actually should make attempts to understand, accept, and celebrate the difference of the other. Uh, I would still not go and, and celebrate what they are. They are murderers at the end of the day. They, well, only in... Well, technically, yeah, they are. But they are murderers who are asked to do what they are doing. I mean, you you can't get the experience if you don't break some boundaries. Yeah, like like I said, I think there are just too many loose points. But I mean, I understand one end of this argument. But at the other end, you're talking about people who... Characters who, who kill people. Who actually... And, and they are told what to do and but, characters, but, but, but gay people are not told what to do in, in many ways gay people actually are told what to do by the society surrounding them well okay but I mean in the sense that pinhead and buddies are told what to do by some higher entity I guess yeah but you know uh, that is not directly tying into the gay population as a large because what the Cenobites are they are still part of of a religious sect. There is still the religious aspect to Cenobites. Yeah, ma- 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 much get... like, like a gay priest in Dimier 
is told what to do by the church still does not qualify him as a priest or as a character. Mm, yeah, well, if you start to mix the religion to the picture, it's getting well, more Well, but the religion is, is obvious in the picture. Like pointed out, Cenobite it is, is a following of a monastic order and they do have a goddamn god. They are priests. It is, and that's that has nothing to do with like sexuality. No, it, it it does not have anything to do with sexuality, but it 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 has everything to do with them having to follow the rules, having to follow mm. someone. That's what priest does. He follows God. He follows the Holy Catholic Church or whatnot. Mm, mm, but mm. but what what actually in Cenobites has to, in my opinion, has to do with homosexuality is the need that the Cenobites present to be understood. They are the other. And if you would be able to understand, or if you would be willing to understand the other, you might not be so extremely opposed to them. <laughs> yeah, I get What I'm driving at is that if you and me could understand Cenobites, we could find something to celebrate in them. Or at least I get that point. be accepting of what they are and how they are. I get that point. It's just a tad bit uncomfortable, maybe, to kind of juxtapose homosexuality or sexuality with Hell's Angels, but I understand completely what you're talking about. And that, that is, you know, that, that uncomfortability is precisely the point why I myself am not completely feel myself safe here talking about the point, because well, once again, that straight man showing up. And I'm not not saying... No, no, but it still is the, is the case where it's very easy for me to offend, in this case, the other, the gay population. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I most likely haven't internalized all of that you have right now said, and I haven't had enough time to think about it. I did read your memo quick, but there's a lot. To note here. Yeah, and my memo, like basically everything that I try to piece together from my mind, is extremely rambling and incomprehensible because you know because because I wrote it as I was you know piecing it through in my mind, and my mind is a ever raging chaos. So <clears throat> whenever I try to put the products of my own comprehension to paper, it's always a complete clusterfuck. But to still come back to your point of of the murder, committing the act of murder, when, when they come and take you with them. There is also something that I like to point out with the Cenobites is that in case of Hellraiser, and still, still, the one, two films, because the third one fucks this up, the Cenobites actually committing the act of murder is actually sort of a blessing to the society, which the member who they take with them is part of. Frank is an irredeemable fucking asshole. Yeah, it, it's made clear he is a petty criminal, he is a career criminal. There is hints that he has killed people before. So in all the sense and purposes, Frank is a rotten apple. Same way as is Julia, as the story progresses. And in a way... The Cenobites are actually doing the whole world a favor by removing Frank from the equation. The status quo that is the society 
is actually healthier without Frank and Julia in it. Like, Larry could have actually survived the whole proceedings unharmed had the Cenobites been noted of Frank's escape sooner. Mm-hmm. So the Cenobites are the sexually different characters who are bound by the rules of their cult. And Frank that is being torn into pieces is who? The evil politician from a corrupt government? No, I wouldn't take it that far. (laughs) Still, Frank is, to my eye, Frank is a rotten apple of the society who still actually would not be in any way in danger of coming into contact with the Cenobites. But Frank begs to meet the Cenobites. He goes to any lengths to get his hands on the box, which is the way of summoning the Cenobites. Frank may not precisely know how, how you know, becoming to contact with Cenobites would work, and the short story most specifically makes the notion that Frank was expecting something else than what he actually got at the end of the proceedings. But Frank still very much wanted what happened to him. Not precisely to be torn into pieces, but he did want to meet the Cenobites. He did want very clearly to experience what the Cenobites have to offer. To a point where in the book, the Cenobites even actually... Even still, they ask for, from Frank, are you sure? And ma- yeah. make the notion that, you know, there is no turning back after this, and Frank is, no, please, take me. Yep, I paid attention to this particular point, that they were actually given a choice in the book for Frank, but in the film, no. In the fr- film, no, and it kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that, well, in, in the book, in, in all honesty's sake, there ha- also have to be made the notion that they may not have been completely sincere when they offered Frank, quote-unquote, the chance. Because when, when in, in the book, when Kirsty opens the box, well, in that case, the Cenobite clearly states that, you know, he is going to take Kirsty because Kirsty opened the box, and that apparently has happened before, but, you know, what can you do? Rules are rules. But there is still, even if you don't count in the... Cenobites giving Frank a warning at the very beginning of the book. There still is the fact that acquiring the box, actually, it takes quite a lot of effort from you. And then you have to dig around with the box for some time to actually get even to get it open. So you, you need the intent. You need to have the drive. You need to want to say open the box or see what it is all about before you actually get the Cenobites to show up. Mm. The uh, second film in the series, The Hellbound, makes this even more clearer through the character of Dr. Chanard, who in that film is the one who wants to summon the Cenobites. And the way how he does it is that he runs an, an, an in sanitarium, so he gives the box to one of his patients, who is extremely good with puzzles. And that patient actually opens the box, and the Cenobites appear. And mm. in that moment, Pinhead precisely makes the point that they are not to touch the patient, because the patient is just a proxy. The person who they are to, to claim is Dr. Chanard, who has yeah. the desire. Yeah, 
I haven't seen it in such a long time. Looking forward to touching Hellbound later. Maybe some, uh, in some future episode, even though, you know, all this shit might be even funnier if we would touch the later, later installments in the franchise and you would <laughs> just cover some complete shit show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could go through the entire franchise, but not, no! one, one, not one after the other. Like very, very slowly. The, those are some sites that I don't want to be shown to me. I, I don't know, I, I've seen the entire franchise up until Judgment, and I most likely will check out Judgment at some point. So in that sense, you know, it's a ride that I already have one sufferable. <laughs> I can take another go, if need be. But that is kind of the point why I myself would make the argument that Hellraiser could be, or should maybe be, wanted as, as a gay cinema. Because through the subject of other... Hellraiser makes the point that we should, we as a whole, we should accept the other, whoever that is, and we should celebrate how the other is different from us. And I, I, I think that there is a way to us. I, I think that, that a gay man can be extremely beautiful even though, you know, I don't get that sexual attraction myself, but, but still, I think that they should be celebrated. I think the individual gay man should be celebrated as the other. And because it's not done so straightforwardly, because you are not given that moment in film where a lone gay man burst into scene in the last minute and brings out the point how he was all the time. He knew that there was something in Julia because he figured it out with female brain or some shit like that. Because of that, I feel that in its presentation, Hellraiser is more sincere and it's more honest than, for example, American Horror Story Season 3. Yeah. And I see so, value in it. So is that a no-go for a Hellraiser the Feminist Edition, where Pinhead is <laughs> um, played by Angelina Jolie? Like it was in the original book? Do you mean? <laughs> but no, I, I, I think that, you know, when it comes to feministy, Hellraiser kind of has that one covered also in the character of Kirsty. And with the fact that, you know, unlike your typical horror movie where Michael Myers is stabbed by the kitchen knife and, you know, Jason is hacked with an axe or some other phallic symbol shit, Kirsty kind of beats the Cenobites by closing the box. Yeah, but like I'm, I have to disappoint our listeners. So I guess I, I'm not going to sp- specifically go head on and say that you are absolutely wrong because you're not. It, you have made valid points. So I'm not going to be just here to argue against your points for the whole night. See, now, of, now you now yeah. you are disappointing the listeners. Yeah, I mean I have already made some points against some of your arguments there. You you have you have. But uh. It's not something that you can just completely throw into the trash can. There are some good points. Yeah, and in the end, you know, I guess that these are the arguments and these are these are the discussions where everybody who has a stake in the matter, you know, deserves the right to be a judge. I myself, I can't climb up on a high horse. And there are the gay men of the world. That Hellraiser is presentation of your sexuality. Period. I have spoken. But, and I'm not trying to do that. Like, I'm not trying to hit anyone in the head here with a hammer. 
and you know to do I, I'm not trying to say that it absolutely is and there is no business saying anything otherwise but I'm merely you know I'm I try to lay out my point my perspective on the matter I try to argument it as best as I can seeing how extremely difficult the subject matter is and seeing how English is not my native tongue so this is complete fucking nightmare for me but I still try to make a compelling argument for my point and everyone listening you know can take that point and simply tear it up and burn it in flames if they so choose but I I don't know maybe someone someone actually agrees with me and find something more to see in Hellraiser maybe someone can find a horror movie where where he can feel that it's an adequate presentation of him. Or maybe someone simply, you know, can, can get the notion that if we can discuss about this one aspect of the film for fucking half an hour, well, maybe all horror films are not just stupid. Maybe there is some intelligence to be found in horror as a genre. Mm. That's more than enough for me. That's true, and But so we can say a lot of things in this podcast and nobody cares because uh, we don't have enough listeners and I'm we are waiting for the hellfires to bring when we get more listeners to this podcast yeah you know so, so at some undisclosed time in future this podcast someone finding these episodes years later will destroy both of our political careers yeah I mean I bet we have been like good boys for three years at some point with this podcast if it ever goes so wrong or so long and we have built slowly a very nice amount of audience and then somebody just goes back in the timeline and oh finds this hellraiser episodes and <laughs> yeah. re- re- reports our podcast and destroys us you you have good. been the president of finland for seven years and all of a sudden someone finds your old po- podcast episodes and that was that right oh well this has been very thorough in kind of in the psychological points again, which is great because has already been millions of podcasts about Hellraiser, the film and its scenes and its shots and all the traditional stuff that you can make up as you go. But thank you for us, for our thoughts. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for anyone who has managed to stick by. <laughs> Where we yeah. are on the sixth hour of goddamn recording at this point. This episode will burn in hell, and and we we ha- it. before we proceed to burn eternally, we have such websites to show you. <laughs> <laughs> Did I just say that? We have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter page. You can find us on your YouTube, where you will be able to find our episodes with a slight delay. Because it takes a little bit more time, unfortunately. Punch them out there. And we have also Instagram. So, plenty of ways to to join us. And you can also get in touch via email. You can find all the details on thefleeclab.lipsen.com or whatever might be our website in the future. That's where you'll find us. The Fleek Lab. You will yeah. find it in your favorite search engine, most probably. You are all special and beautiful. Please remember that. <laughs> And next week, Henrik, we are going to watch Dumbo. Are you feeling very Dumbo right now? Don't answer it. My, my ears are already flapping. <laughs> <laughs>
the, uh, the original from 1941, not the live action that is going to take place soon, but that's why we are taking a look at this original. Do you mention the time when the film was still good? Yeah, more than likely. But we haven't watched the live action, most likely we won't. <laughs> <laughs> Until next week. <laughs>